It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi everybody, I'm Murray Horwitz, and in this day and age of the explosion of serials on television, we're going to take a semi-deep dive tonight into one of the best radio comedy serials, Easy Aces. And we'll celebrate the centennial of a great Hollywood musical star, Catherine Grayson, starring with Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra on the Lux Radio Theater production of Anchors Away and on Mail Call with Groucho Marx? You bet your life. Plus, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and the original source of that music you hear in the background right now, Big Town, starring Edward G. Robinson. So, be here now. Don't give a thought to anything that may have troubled you last week, and don't fret about what might crop up beginning tomorrow. Instead, relax, settle in, and give your imagination free reign here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. I'm more than usually excited about tonight's adventure from the man with the action-packed expense account. During the years I lived in New York, I was befriended by an actor named Guy Rep. He was a great and incredibly well-read gentleman, and he managed to keep working in radio long after its glory days had passed. Well, we're about to hear him in a very small role, that of a British-accented doorman, in a case called the takes a crook matter it comes from february 18th 1962 and the cbs series yours truly johnny dollar johnny dollar dollar do you by any chance happen to remember a case you accidentally got yourself involved in just four weeks three days and 13 hours ago what in the course of which you saved a man's life well if you're talking about that federal man the fellow from the bureau wait a minute Hal? Yeah. Hal Leonard. That's right. You're okay again. I sure am. Hail, hearty, and back to normal. Well, thank goodness for that. But if you hadn't just happened to walk in from the back room of Becker's print shop that night, Johnny, I'd be pushing up the well-known daisy. Oh, I don't know about that, Hal. Well, I do, and I'll be eternally grateful, Johnny. Oh, forget it. But you, uh, you didn't answer my question. Do you remember just what happened that night? Well, of course. The miracle is that you remember now. Yeah, I guess it is. Believe me, complete amnesia is nothing to laugh at. Yeah, the wallop on the head that character gave you must have been a dilly. One more like it would have killed me. But then you walked in like the U.S. Marine. Would you forget it? Forget it, huh? Sure. I mean, after all, it was just a matter of luck, my being there in the back room of that shop. And all because I had the mistaken idea that Becker was fencing some loot from a burglary job. Instead, you uncovered his real racket, the one I was investigating. Well, let's say I stumbled on it. So, what happens? I don't know. What happens? You, one Johnny Dollar, the real hero of that fracas, end up eligible for a nice long prison term. Well, that's just a matter of... What? Sure. Prison term? That's what I said. For what? Possession. Possession of what? Of evidence. Evidence? Yeah, think now. Weren't you busy packing a lot of the stuff you'd found in the, into the back of your car when you heard him slug me and came barging in on us? Holy smoke, Hal, you're right. So, where is it now? Still in the back of my car. And you know the penalty for possession, so maybe I'd better fly up there and take it off your hands. Oh, I'll be waiting, Hal. I'll be there. Okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> 
CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Worldwide Mutual Insurance Company Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the takes-a-crook matter. So help me, I've forgotten all about that evidence I picked up at Becker's shop. And of course the federal boys would want it, would need it, to prosecute their case. The reason I'd forgotten it was because I hadn't used my car for some four weeks. All my investigations had been out of town. Well, it would only take Hal a couple of hours to get up from Washington. I could simply meet his plane and... Hmm. Johnny Dollar. Les Walters, Johnny, over here at Worldwide Mutual. Oh, of course. How are you, Les? Uh, you want to take a run over here to see me? What about... Well, you ever hear of the More Madonna? The what? It's a painting, an oil painting, and a pretty famous one. Oh, sure, sure. It was the piece de resistance in that exhibition over at the Manhart Galleries. Yeah, that's the one. Painted by Marcel More and worth a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Hal, hmm? why anybody would ever pay $200,000 for an impressionistic atrocity like that is something I will never understand. Uh, well, the point is, friend, somebody did. We insured it to the hilt and... Now it's gone. Uh-oh. Yeah. Can you get on it right away? Well, almost right away. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, Les, I have to stick around for a while to meet one of Uncle Sam's boys coming up from Washington. Aha! Uh -huh, they finally caught up with you. Happy <laughs> days in the clink. You know something, Les? Yeah. But what I have in my possession, I could be locked up for life. You're like what, Johnny? Well, I don't think I'd better go into it. But as soon as he gets here and picks it up... Well, when'll that be? Well, according to a timetable, he should pull into the airport around 7.05 p.m. Well, now, look, uh, I'm working late on this thing, so, uh... Well, in the meantime, why don't you come on over here and let me tell you what I know about this stolen painting? Good idea. Why not? Okay, good. I'm on my way. Well, looks like a busy evening ahead. Instead of calling for a taxi, the usual procedure when I was on expense account, I decided to use my own car. It would give me a chance to make certain that all important evidence in the federal case was still safely locked up in the trunk. Matter of fact, on the way down to my garage, I decided that it might be a better idea to take the stuff out, take it back up to my apartment where I could check it over. Now remember this. It was nearly 5 p.m. of a dark and cloudy day. My unlighted garage is at the back of the apartment building, but faces out toward the sidewalk in the street. And it has one of those quick-lift doors on it. There wasn't much in the way of traffic or pedestrians. Here we are. Make sure the stuff is still in here. Hmm. 
Yep. Sure is. Now, if I can just pile these stacks together, carry them upstairs in one load. There we are. Ooh, brother, when I think of all the people who would like to get out of Hey. Hey, wait a minute. Who slammed down the door out there? Not out there, mister. What? I'm right in here. Ah! When I came to, I'm not sure. But as I lay there on the floor of my garage, I wondered for a few minutes if my skull was still in one piece. It was, but there was a very fancy lump on the back of it, and I was so dizzy I could hardly get to my feet. I managed to feel my way to the door, painfully pushed it up and open, and in what little light came across from one of the street lamps, saw just exactly what I expected. The trunk of my car was still open and very, very empty. I must have been hit pretty hard because I passed out again for a few minutes. Then I got up again and staggered around to the front door of my apartment house, though I could barely make out where I was going. I half remembered stuffing something into the pocket of my jacket. Something I'd all the while had tightly clenched in my right hand. Foyer, I clumsily stumbled against a man who was pushing a doorbell under one of the mailboxes. Oh. Oh. Hey, take oh, it easy, old man. I'm sorry, I uh, have yourself a little too much. Johnny. What? Johnny, what happened to you? Oh, oh here. Let me give you a hand. Hell. Yeah. Here now. Yeah, let it. Yeah. Say, it looks like somebody really worked you over. Listen. Now, you listen. Let's get you upstairs to your apartment and find out what this is all about. Got away with all of it, huh? Yeah, I, I'm afraid so. Yeah. Oh. Now just lie still and take it easy, will you? Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. You uh, want another little snort of this? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, no, no. All I want is just to... You lie here and sleep for about three weeks, that's oh, all. You do that while I run this thing down. Now, Johnny, you're sure you, you didn't get a look at him? Oh, hell, when he when he yanked the door to, when he yanked the door down behind my back, he, inside the place was just dark as pitch. But you left the garage open. Yeah. And wait a minute, somewhere somewhere in this pants pocket here. Yeah. I have the keys to the garage. And the keys to my car in case you need it. Okay. Now, you get some sleep. I'll be back in time to get you some breakfast, if not before. Oh, thanks, Al. You are a good man. You know something? I think I might have slept for three weeks. If it hadn't been for the telephone there beside my bed. You know something else? That darn instrument gets me up and going like nothing else in the world. Johnny Dollar. Johnny, where under the sun have you been? Les. Yeah, that's right, Les Walters. I waited around my office until after 7 o'clock, then I left word with a watchman and came on home. Oh, and I still didn't hear from you by, uh, well, let's see, it's, uh, 
That's after 10.30. What happened to you anyway? Oh, plenty, Les. I just couldn't make it. Well, I hope you can now. Sure, sure. Uh, well, look, uh, to save time, instead of coming over here to my place, you go see Mr. Thaddeus Brittingham, the man the painting was stolen from. Uh, he can tell you more than I can. Uh, let's see, he lives in uh, apartment 7B at the Selfridge. The Selfridge? Yeah, you, you know, that fancy, big, new apartment building over on the other side of town. 7B. That's right, 7B. I'll phone him and tell him that you're coming. Yeah, yeah, Les, you do that. But instead of going over to the Selfridge, I ran up item one. Item one? At this stage of the game? Anyhow, it's 90 cents for a taxi to a rooming house of a character who calls himself Little Willie. To put it bluntly, Little Willie is a stool pigeon. One of the few that even the police don't know about. And they know most of them. The reason I picked on him was because of his almost uncanny knowledge of art thieves and their activities. Oh, hiya, Johnny. Willie, I've got 50 bucks I thought maybe you might find some use for. Only a hundred, Johnny? When I've been just sitting here waiting for you to pay me a visit? Oh, about what? That Maury Madonna. What else? And ain't it worth a hundred if I can tell you where to look? <laughs> All right, Willie. A hundred. You see, I know there was something up when I seen him sitting there day after day. Who, Willie? Sitting where? At that gallery. The gallery, hmm? But just looking wasn't enough, I guess. So that's when he took it. Took it home to copy it. Who, Willie? And him being one of the best copiers ever lived. Why, Johnny, he could almost fall the artist himself. But listen. Yeah? You better get on him pretty fast. He never made a copy unless he had a customer. And with the one he'll get for a copy of that Madonna, well, he ain't going to stay around. He'll get out of the country. Willie. Hundred and fifty, did you say, Johnny? And that painting worth a couple of hundred grand? Okay, okay. Okay. Old Charlie Starkey. Charlie Starkey? Out of the pen again, hmm? Yeah. Hmm. Where'll I find him, Willie? He's been renting a room at 324 South Crocus. Good. But if he's already finished his copy and made a sale... Willie, let me worry about that. Item two, the $150 I mailed in cash to little Willie on the way out of my apartment. I should have waited, because item three is $1.70 for a taxi over to another dingy little rooming house at 324 South Crocus. But I got there too late. Yep, old Charlie Starkey, his mission accomplished, had paid off his landlady, a character by the name of Sally Botts, and had taken a powder. Yeah, he's gone. Not more than a half hour ago. I see. Well... Okay, Mrs. Butts. And I'll say this, mister. He sure left in a big hurry. Oh, I don't doubt it. Left all his paint pots and stuff and all his extra clothes behind. Oh, all sorts of stuff. Oh? Wait a minute. Yeah? Now, what's the matter, mister? Don't you believe me? Mrs. Butts. Well, look. Look at here. Here's the money that he paid me off with. See? Okay, but the only thing I want to look at now is... Wait a minute. What? That money, let me see that. Just let me have that a minute. This money? Yeah, let me see it. What's the matter with it? You think maybe it's marked or something? Marked? You bet it is. And Mrs. Botts, you don't know how well. Hey! Come along. 
I want to look at his room. Sure enough, carefully rolled up and parked in a closet where sooner or later it was bound to be discovered was the Mare Madonna. Okay, part of my job was done. Item four, another $1.70 for a cab back to my apartment where I stashed the painting away. And then, now, uh, don't try to get ahead of me, ahead of this report, I mean, because it couldn't have been old Charlie Starkey who'd made the attack on me to get the stuff out of the back of my car. He wasn't the type. He wasn't strong enough to have laid me out that way. And the voice I'd heard certainly hadn't been his. But I suddenly remembered that when whoever it was slugged me the first time there in the dark garage, I'd made a grab for him and had torn away part of his clothing. And what I had clutched in my hot little fist was still in the pocket of my jacket. I took a look. It was a small piece of paper, a receipted bill issued to a Mr. Harvey Twiller, a name that didn't mean a thing, but it was a receipt for rental paid for an apartment. And where? At the Selfridge. Then things started adding up. Item five, two dollars for a cab across town to the Selfridge where the uniformed doorman had ideas that didn't quite fit into my plans. 27B, Mr. Brittingham's apartment? Uh, no. Uh, no. Well, yes, uh, of course, sir, because I know that he's expecting you. I know he is, but you see... But I can't let you go up to see Mr. Twiller, who hasn't told me that he's expecting you, unless I call him up and announce you. Now, look, uh, take a look at my credentials. Yeah. Special investigator? That's right. Well, I, I, I suppose that does make it a little different, sir. So where is he? But are you sure I hadn't better announce you first? Yes, I'm quite sure. Well? Very well, sir. He's in 5A. Okay. Come in. It's open. Come on in. Well, Scotty... Scotty Bagney. You're surprised, Dollar? That means my alias Harvey Twiller did fool you. Did it, Scotty? Well, it must have, mustn't it? Or you'd be the one holding a gun instead of me. So you're out of the pen, too, hmm? For quite a while now, Dollar, quite a while. I knew I should have recognized your voice there in my garage. Ah. Uh, when I saw you here at the door just now, I thought you had. That you'd seen through my alias. But now, since I do hold this gun on you, I suggest that you come in, close the door, and uh, carefully remove your own gun and drop it on the floor. I suppose I haven't any choice, have I? None whatsoever. That's the good lad. Now, uh, kick it over here. Thank you. Now, sit down, please. Why not? But tell me, Scotty... How I happen to know what you had in the trunk of your car? Mm-hmm. I heard about the job in Becker's print shop, so I've been telling you. And since I occasionally have need of that sort of thing that you had in your car trunk, I uh, belted you and purloined it, as we say in the trade. Mm. I'm sorry, though, that you found me. Oh, you should be. Well, you misunderstand me. I mean, because I've got to kill you now, Dollar. Now. Don't Scotty. Hell. Drop the gun. Ah, very well. Who are you, sir? 
Well, so you found him first, huh, Johnny? Oh, I'm mighty glad you did too, Hal, but how come? There's prints on the door of your garage. Here's your gun. Thanks. I got an ID on the prints. The local police steered me to a couple of stoolies who knew about them, and here I am. You found the stuff? No. Nor will he, my friend. You see, I made a little purchase with it, uh, with uh, most of it, that is. Purchase? Don't you get it, Hal? I'm afraid not. The painting. The Moray Madonna? Or rather, a copy of it. Copy? What are you talking about? One of the oldest gags in the world. You see, Bagney here somehow got next to another old crook by the name of Charlie Starkey. Yes, yes, I met him in prison. But uh, what do you mean when you said that the painting I have... Hold it, Scotty, and listen. Yeah, very well. Now, go on, Johnny. He found out, of course, that Charlie had been sent up for stealing fine artworks, that he knew his stuff and was one of the best. Until he got caught. Yes, but uh, go on. What Scotty didn't learn, though, was that old Charlie was not only an artist himself, but a copyist. As good as they come. A copyist. So here was the deal, and you can call me on it if I'm wrong, Scotty. Well, no, no, listen, please. Just shut up, Scotty. Go on, Johnny. Scotty, with his fancy manners and good clothes, was a pretty successful fence for good artwork. He always knew enough of the spoiled, filthy rich who'd buy, even though they realized the stuff was stolen. And when he learned that old Charlie was a master at lifting such things, well, he just couldn't wait to team up with him and get hold of the Moray Madonna. What he didn't know, though, was that Charlie was more of a nut than a crook. That he'd only steal the stuff long enough to take it home and copy it. A dollar. No kidding. And later, he'd sneak it back. Or just let it be found somewhere. Meantime, of course, he'd pass on the copy for a price to a sucker like Scotty here. Oh, I don't believe it. Dollar, look at the painting. It's there in the closet. You admit you have it. Well, now you've tagged me. You'd find it anyway. So go ahead. It's there in the closet. You mean the copy is? No, no, no. The original. It has to be. Don't you see? I already made a deal to sell it to a millionaire down in New York. Well, well, go on, look at it. I don't need to, Scotty. The original is locked up in my apartment. It can't be, it can't be. And it is the original. So that is that. Okay, good work, Johnny. You've done your job, but now what about mine? Where is the evidence from that operation in the printing shop that I came to get from it? Oh, that'll show up, Hal. And that's what I'm afraid of, in dribs and drabs all over the country. Oh, no, I mean right here. What? Sure, thanks to our good friend Scotty. Thanks to me? I'm afraid I don't get it, Johnny. Well, I'm sure that I don't. I'm only surprised it hasn't already shown up. Oh, wait a minute, maybe some of it is right here now. What? Why don't you take a look through Scotty's pockets? He said that most of it went for the painting, not all. In that case... Now, be quiet, both of you. Over here with me, Hal, but keep that gun on him. Right. Scotty, don't move. Don't, don't worry. Uh, come in, it's open. Come in. Scotty, you crook. This money, this money you gave me for the painting. Look, look at it. There's your evidence, Hal. Uh, what's the matter with it? What's the matter? It's counterfeit, that's what it is. Counterfeit? Look at it, all of it. Counterfeit, phony. Just like the painting you sold him, Charlie. What? Uh, Who are you? You'd be surprised, my friend. Now, don't move, either of you. Thanks, Johnny. Yep, there it is, Hal, your evidence. Yeah? Except for whatever Scotty may have held out for himself. It's kind of a quadruple play, wouldn't you call it? Dollar to Scotty to Charlie, to you. Happy now? (laughs) Real happy. It's kind of a complicated mess, I know. But the painting is back to its owner. The counterfeit money is recovered. I'm in the clear with Uncle Sam. And all is well. Expense account total? Why not just pay me the commission on that lovely Madonna? 
Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a couple of sweet little old men. Real characters. Especially one of them. The killer. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr., music supervision by Ethel Huber. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Martin Blaine as Hal Leonard, Ralph Bell as Scotty Bagney, Jack Grimes as Les Walters, Leora Thatcher as Mrs. Botts, Bill Kramer as Little Willie, Guy Rep as the doorman, and Louis Van Ruten as Charlie Starkey. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hanna speaking. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. The takes a crook matter from this very month, exactly 60 years ago. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Do your friends sometimes tell you, oh, you gotta see and then they name some new TV series? It seems to me that nearly every one of those TV shows is what they used to call in broadcasting a continuing story. Most of them are soap operas, really, often astonishingly sophisticated, well-produced, well-written, and well-acted soap operas, but you do have to tune in every episode to see what happens next. Well, Radio had its really soapy soap operas, of course, some of which, like The Guiding Light, continued on television. But it also had its other continuing stories, some of which were comedies, just as the shows we see on TV in our own time, like The Sopranos and Schitt's Creek. Listeners to the big broadcast are familiar with the phenomenon on, say, Lum and Abner, or some running gags on The Jack Benny Show. But there were other distinguished programs, and in order to spotlight them, we do have to do quite a few episodes. Two of the most distinguished were Vic and Sade and Easy Aces, and we're going to feature that latter show now. We're not going to binge listen to it, but we are going to play a more or less complete story that took three 15-minute episodes to tell. It has to do with playing bridge, which, by the way, was the premise of the first-ever sketch that Goodman Ace and his real-life wife Jane performed on a radio station in Kansas City in 1930. The next year, they started a run on national radio that lasted some 15 years, with Jane Ace playing the not-too-bright queen of malapropisms, as we're about to hear. From 1946, probably, during its time as a syndicated series, it's three back-to-back-to-back episodes of Easy Aces. Ladies and gentlemen, Easy Aces. Easy Aces. 
journal found out last night that inviting a couple of friends over to the house for a pleasant evening meant having a bridge game. It was quite disconcerting, too, because she expected a friendly evening of conversation. This episode takes place the next morning and is in alternate scenes between Mr. Ace's office and the Ace's bungalow, where we shall find Jane with a strange young man. But first to Mr. Ace's office, where we find him in conference with a man. No, I think your price is a little too high, Miss Race. Too high? Well, have you gone over the grounds around that home? Why, there's not a richer looking... Oh, I know all about that, Miss Race. No, I'm not saying it's not worth it. I say it's a little high. That is, I mean, it's higher than I wanted to go. Well, if you'd have given me an idea about how much you want to spend, Mr. Hudson, I might have been able to dig up something else I have on my list. I represent quite a few parcels of property around here. Well, there's nothing else. I found out you were handling this one place my wife kind of got set on, and you know how women are. Yes, I... So I promised her I'd look it up. And that's how I happened to drop in on you. Uh, nice of you to spare the time. No, not at all. I only wish we could do business. No, I'm afraid it's out of the question. Well, I hate to have you turn the deal down cold, but why not make me an offer? I'll take it up with my client. Well, why not have your client make a more reasonable offer and you take it up with me? Well, I could do that, only I'd like to know from you just how much you... Well, uh... you find out what the best price is, and if it might be any inducement to him to get cash for it, I... I mean, he might... Oh, be... sure he might. That ought to make quite a difference. You uh, mean you want to pay the whole thing in cash? Well, that's right. I don't mind telling you that Mrs. Hudson has her mind pretty definitely set on that home. Uh, she noticed all the grounds and all the landscaping. Uh, she knows a nice place when she sees it, and only I don't want to go that steep for a home. Well, I admit that's a lot of money to invest in a home, but of course you're getting a place that's a show place around these parts. Yes, I know all about it, but I think I know what it means. Uh, pretty good-sized commission for you, huh? Well, <laughs> it, uh... sure it does. Now, uh, now, suppose you get busy and see if you can't do a little better. Uh, you can let me know. You have my card there. Yes, I have it right here. Uh, give me a ring. Uh, I'll be very happy to. I, I'd like to put this over. Thanks very much for dropping uh, in. Uh, oh, you're, you're busy. I'm sorry. Oh, hello, Mark. Well, I'll wait out here. No, no, no. We're with it. Oh, uh, Mr. Hudson, this is uh, Miss Hale, a friend of the family. How do you do? How do you do, Miss Hale? Uh, I was just going. Oh, don't let me rush you off. You can't make any money out of me. In fact, I came here to collect for me sum of $8.50. Well, now, that's more important business than we were talking. Well, you see, we had a little bridge game at the house last night. Oh, uh, bridge, huh? Yes. I thought you looked like a smart bridge player, Miss Hale. Oh, no such luck. I wasn't even in the game. Mr. Ace and his wife lost the money, and I advanced the amount. Yeah, we had another couple over to the house, and they certainly took us. I was eight fifty short of the right amount, so I borrowed it from them. I'm going shopping on my lunch hour, and I need the money. Fair enough. Say, that bridge game sounds like the kind of a game Mrs. Hudson would enjoy. She loves to win. Cheerful winner, you know. Well, now, maybe you'd like to come over some evening with Mrs. Hudson. Oh, no, I didn't mean that to oh, be. we live out by this piece of property that you're interested in. Maybe we can all run over there and take a good look around, and you can drop in on the way back and make an evening out of this bridge. Well, no, that doesn't sound bad. Now, let's make it a date, huh? That's <laughs> pretty good salesman, isn't he, Miss Hale? Well, wow. it certainly sounds like he's trying to corral you. Well, we'll see, Mr. Ace. Now, suppose you find out what the rock-bottom price is for that place and let me know. Then we can go over and look at it, and we might close the deal. Who knows? And then you can come out and we'll win it all back at bread. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we make it a date for next week. Well, so, uh, what's a good night for you? I can pick you and Mrs. Hudson up and drive you out there in the afternoon. <laughs> Persistent, isn't he? Yes. Well, you can't drive a man for twice. Well, uh, suppose you give me a ring, say, Tuesday or Wednesday. How's that? Right. Well, I guess I'll be running now. Uh, nice to meet you, Miss Hale. Well, thank you. Sorry and, to see you uh, out of the house. Don't let him let you off without saying you that eight cents. No, I won't. Don't worry. Goodbye, Mr. Hudson. I'll call you next week. All right. Well, now, that's more like it. 
More like what? Well, I mean, as long as Jane insists on having people over to spend the evening, since everybody wants to play bridge with her and everybody wins from us, I might as well have a prospective customer win. Oh, a prospective customer? Is he? If I can sell him that home, why, this is a bigger deal than that ever deal that I've Seems like a nice man. What does he do? He's a big man in the linen business. Gee, I'd like to sell him that place. I'm going to concentrate on him. If having him out the house will do it, I'll have him out. To play bridge? Sure. You heard him say that his wife likes to win. Well, I don't know a better place he can come to win. Why did you get a load of the way Jane played last night? Why, she's worse than she used to be. Yes, but you shouldn't have bawled her out so much. That might have had something to do with upsetting her day. So I thought, Mr. Selby, that on account of the way my husband keeps picking on me, the way I play bridge, you could give me some lessons and teach me to play perfectly. Even if it takes a whole week, I don't care. A week? Yes, I thought Mrs. Benton, and she told me you were the best bridge teacher she knew. Oh, yes, Mrs. Benton was one of my pupils. She plays a fairly good game. Very good? Well, I think she's awfully good. I wish I could play that good. Won't I surprise my husband the next time we play and he sees how good I play? Why, do you know that last night he said some of the most terrible things to me in front of some friends that were here? Yes, most husbands do. Well, he can't do that to me. Not if I play better than he does. And that's what I want you to show me how. Uh, How to play better than he does? Yes. Well, uh, what kind of a game does he play? What kind of a game? Yes. Bridge. That's what I'm talking about. No, no, no. I mean, what sort of a bridge game does he play? Is he very good? Oh, I don't know. He thinks he is. But I've noticed every time I've ever played with him, he always loses. He never says anything about that. He's always taking on the way I play. And some of the things he said, like once I did six spades last night, and you know what he said? Well, I really don't care. He said, you made your bid, now lay in it. Lie in it. What? Lie. No, honestly, he did. And in front of my friends, well, I felt like, well, I'd just rather not talk about it. All I want to know is how to play perfectly. Well, that's a pretty large order. I, I can't promise miracles. I can teach you the fundamentals of a sound game of risk. Well, let's hurry. I want to learn as much as I can as quick as I can. Well, that all depends on how well you concentrate and just how much you already know and what card sense you have. Now, you take Mrs. Benton. When she first came to me, she hardly knew one card from another. Oh, I know that. Look, king of diamonds, three of spades, five of hearts. Mrs. A. I was only speaking figuratively. Oh, you were? Yes. Now, uh, let me see just what your knowledge of bidding is. I think the simplest method is to open the bidding with two and a half tricks. You know trick values, I take it. That's hard? Tricks. Oh, please, Mr. Selby, I haven't got time for that now. I want to learn as fast as I can, and you want to show me tricks. I haven't got time for that. No, 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 I'm not showing you. Please, Mrs. Ace, one of the first principles of good bridge is an unruffled temper. I always try to control mine. Please don't upset me. Well, I didn't... Now we're quite calm again. Let's start over. As I was saying, uh, that the tip value of the hand indicates just what you should bid. I wish you could show me how you would bid these 13 cards I'll deal off the deck. I just want to get a line on what you know and where we should start. Yeah, here we are. 13 cards. Now, you have sort them and show me just how you would bid them and why. Uh, just like I was playing bridge, you mean? That's right. Just as if you held that hand in a game of bridge. I just want to get an idea of what your bidding is. Well, now, let me Take your time. No, I better not. I want to learn as quick as I can. I want to show them the next time we play. Well, I did a heart. A heart. Uh, five. 
Why, when nobody stops to ask you why, they just pass or they But I want to know how you derive a one-heart bid out of that hand. Why didn't you bid a club? A club with only one club in my... Oh, Mr. Selby, are you sure you... Well, there must be a reason why you bid a heart. Well, look at these hearts. One, two, four, six, seven hearts. You have two six in hearts, two in spades, a single ace of clubs. That's five six. Your hand calls for a two-heart bid. You demand your partner to bid. You must therefore bid two hearts. Two hearts? Right away? Your first bid. You must give your partner the information. Mr. Ace, you mean? Yes. If he's your partner, you must tell him you have a two-bid. Well, I'd rather not tell him anything. I'm paying you to tell me so I can surprise him. Why do I want to tell him? So but you must give your partner information with every bid. A two-bid tells him that you have a very large hand. Doesn't it make me sound too excited, bidding two hearts right away? Won't everybody know? You must give your partner information. Oh, all right. With a big hand like this, you must bid two hearts. Well, if you say so, I'd better write this down, then. Now, wait a minute. Seven hearts and the eight king of spades and the ace of clubs must bid two hearts. There. It'll just be my luck never to get that hand again. Uh, now, what else? Never to get... But you don't... Oh, well, I mustn't use my pen. Mrs. Ace, I think we better start a little further back. I'm afraid this is going to take more than a week. Much more. Oh, dear. Well, how long do you think... Well, that all depends on you. I'll do my best, and I think you'd better take the private lessons rather than the class lessons, Mrs. Ace. Oh, yes, I want it to be private. I don't want my... Seems to me you're going to capitalize on James Bridget. Well, it's about time I got something out of it. I put enough into it. Which reminds me again that I came here for eight fifty. Oh, yes. I, I've got it here for you. I hate to done you this way, but that's all I've got for payback. Well, that's quite all right. I was going to send it over to your office, but Mr. Hudson came in, and I kind of... What did you lose between you last night? Eighteen dollars. At a quarter of a cent. And you saw the hand she held. One hand there, she had a cinch, three-note trump made, and they offered to throw the cards in before the last four tricks were played. But she insisted on playing it out, that she might make a mistake. And don't you think she went set two tricks? I saw that. Well, if I'm going to have to put up with that, I might as well cast my money on the waters. The Hudson waters? Oh, I get it. Right. Well, here you are, 850 and thanks. You're welcome. Listen, uh, you might do me a favor and be on hand when I have Hudson and his wife out, sort of help things along. You want me to play in the game with you? Oh, no, don't. Now, don't play. I want her to play a usual game. If Mrs. Hudson likes to win a bridge, this ought to be a cinch to sell. She's the one we've got to please. Well, if she enjoys winning. Looks like a big time for her. Yeah. Well, I've got to be going. I'm going to call up Jane and tell her not to plan anything for Tuesday. Well, that it might be Wednesday. Well, we'll leave both nights open. This is business. You Looks know. like Jane's going to put over another deal for you. Well, if I take private lessons, you can teach me quicker, can't you? Better not expect to learn too quickly, Mrs. Ace. After all, we're just starting, you know. Just starting? Well, I'll have you understand I've been playing bridge for over six years. For well, over six I don't believe it. Well, I have. Well, uh, I mean, uh, haven't you learned anything in all these years? Well, we only play now and there. Every year I learn a little something different. But after six years, if you learn a little something every year... Oh, it just goes in one year and out the other. Yes, I was afraid of that, Mrs. Well, I'll do the Well, if it keeps going in one year and out the other, Mr. Ace's little plan to get on the good side of a customer may work out all right, but does it? We'll learn more about it when next we meet the Easy Aces.
Mr. Race has an important prospective customer who casually remarks that his wife likes to play bridge and likes to win. Well, said Mr. Race, I don't know a better place she can come to win than our house. And so it was arranged for an evening of bridge this week. In the meantime, Jane, fed up with Mr. Race's sarcasm about her bridge, has secretly begun to take lessons. This episode is in alternate scenes between the bridge instructor's studio and Mr. Race's office. But first to the studio where we find Jane and the instructor. Listen. Please, Mr. Selby, I wish you'd teach me a little faster. I don't seem to be making any head work at all. I'll say there's no head work. Well, I told you I had to learn how to play by tonight. They're coming over tonight, and they're strangers. I never even met them. And I'm not going to have Mr. Ace boiling me up the way he does in front of strangers every time we play bridge. I'm paying you to teach me how to play perfectly. I can't do the impossible. Well, it's a fine time to tell me. Why didn't you tell me you can't do the impossible? I could have gone to some... What do you mean, impossible? I heard that remark. Mrs. Ace, I've taught bridge for some ten-odd years. Well, it must have been very odd if this is the way you My do. My dear Mrs. Ace. Please, Mr. Selby, let's not get personal. Personal? I'm not getting personal. I'm trying to be as impersonal as I can. I'm trying to show you the fundamentals of a sound bridge game. This is your third lesson, and you know as little about it as you did the first day I saw you. Well, why don't you concentrate a little more? I? If you'd only try harder, you could teach me what you're trying to My do. dear Mrs. Ace. Please, Mr. Selby, I must remind you that I'm a married woman. Ma- I don't care if you're... Well, I do. Now, let's just think about bridge. That would be a change. Yes. I told you that my husband is bringing over Mr. and Mrs. Hudson, and he told me they want to play bridge. Well, I thought this would be my big chance to surprise him. But you're not teaching me fast enough. Well, Mr. Selby. Will you please pick up those cards, Mrs. Ace? All right. Where were we? You were saying something about this card and that card. I said this card. Yeah, that's what I said. This card. This. D-I-S. I was saying that when you discard, you must discard a card above a five spot. Well, don't look so blank. That's not blank, that's thinking. I was thinking of a card above a five. Like a six, you mean? Like a six. That's marvelous, my dear Mrs. Ace. Now, now, Mr. Selby. I said you must discard above a five spot. In that way, you signal your partner that you have a high card in that suit. Signal? Yes, and don't look so shocked. Bridge is a game of information. You must inform your partner in every legitimately possible way just what you hold. For instance... If your partner leads the ace of spades, and you have the king of spades, you will drop on his ace of spades a card higher than a five to let him know that you have the king. To let him know that I have... Yes, in that way, he'll know how to play the hand. But I don't want to tell him how to play. Tell who? My husband. I want to play better than he does. And if I'm paying you to teach me and you want me to tell him how to play, well, what good is it? What good is it indeed? See? Let him figure his hand out. I just want to show him that I can play better than Mr. he does. Mr. Ace, do you have to learn to play bridge? Do I have? Well, sure I do. They're coming over tonight, and I want to surprise him. You will. Well, not if we just sit here talking. Now, what else should I do? Let's just forget about discarding my biggest cards. Just tell me some things that I can do myself without giving him the information, too. But bridge is a game of information. Yes, but you can just give me the information, can't you? After all, I'm paying you myself. I'm paying you out of my hardly earned money. Why should I tell him things that I learned? Can't I make you understand that in order to play bridge well, two partners must constantly give each other information. 
They must. They must? They certainly must. Well. Well, how would it be if I gave him the wrong information? Then he'd make the mistake. Give him the wrong? Yes, and let him see what it's like to play wrong. That's a good idea, isn't it? I'll just give him the wrong information. You don't need a bridge teacher for that, Mrs. Ace. Oh, but I have to know all the other things besides the information, don't I? I've tried to show you all there is to know. We've gone over the bidding a hundred times. Yes, I think I know about the bidding. Oh, you think you do? Yes. Do you want me to go over it again? It won't hurt, Mrs. Ace. Well, I'll start from the beginning. You have to bid when you've got, uh, was it two tricks? To bid, you must have two and a half tricks. Yes, if I've got two and a half tricks. But, Mr. Hudson, if you'll only make me some sort of a bid on the property, I might be able to talk my client. Oh, no, and... I told you I'd rather your client gave me his rock-bottom price. Well, I asked him to, but he's as cautious as you are, I suppose. He wants to know just how much you're willing to spend. Well, to tell the truth, Mr. Ace, that's not entirely up to me. Well, who is it up to? Well, you see, uh, Mrs. Hudson sort of... Uh, oh, Mrs. Hudson sort of. Yeah, she likes to feel that she manages our affairs. Uh, that is, our household affairs, just as I manage my business. And as this is a home we're buying, she rather feels it's in her department. Oh, I see. Uh, that's uh, how it is. Well, uh, when we go out to look at the place this afternoon, won't we be able to get some sort of word from Mrs. Hudson as to how much she wants to spend? We might. Oh, we might, huh? And then again, we might not. Oh, we might not. Yes. You see, well, to be frank, Mr. Ace, Mrs. Hudson is not in too good a mood today. Oh. Yes. You see, uh, well, we played bridge last night. Uh, I think I told you that bridge makes up most of her life. Yes, that's why I've arranged this game for tonight. Yes, and she's very anxious to play, too. Well, but you see, last night we, uh, well, we lost. Oh, you lost. And that's why she's not in such a good... Uh, Mrs. Hudson is a very cheerful winner, Mr. Ace. Oh, cheerful. But uh, but how much could you have lost? Oh, it's I mean... not the amount of money, Mr. Ace. I don't have to tell you that the few dollars we either win or lose at Bridge matter a great deal. No, I didn't imagine it would. It's but... just that she hates to lose. It's become an obsession with her. Uh, we were up most of the night arguing, uh, <coughs> discussing the hands we held and the way they were played, uh, you know. I see. Well, that is going to be rather difficult. But I know what. I'll get her out of that mood tonight. Wait till she plays bridge with us, Mr. Hudson. Well, I hope we do better. Oh, though. don't worry about that. I mean, well, just don't worry about it. But I wish you'd not be too insistent with her for the time being. I told her to drop in. We just sort of talked things over. Of course, I understand. Just how you feel. Oh, there you are. There you are, my dear. Uh, come right in. Uh, I was just telling Mr. Reese that you'd be in. Uh, we were just going out to lunch, the three of us, and then we'd drop over to the home and have a look around. Uh, how are you, my pet? I'm quite well. Oh, uh, Mr. Ace, uh, this is Mrs. Hudson. How do you do, Mrs. Hudson? I'm quite sure the price is too high on that home, Mr. Ace. Oh, but I think we might... My mind's made up not to overpay. Oh, of course. I don't blame you. I told Mr. Ace my pet. You told him what? Well, I told him I'd have to think it over. I'll think it over. After all, the home is my department. I don't tell you how to run your business. Sure, that's no more than fair. And my mind's made up that we squander entirely too much money. We've got to put a stop to it. We can't afford it. Of course we can. But I wish you'd think of that more often, Mr. H. Could have thought of it a little more often last night. Oh, now let's forget about last night, my dear. Uh, Mr. Ace has arranged a nice little game for us tonight. Uh, haven't you, Mr. Ace? Well, I would be more than pleased if you two would come out tonight. Mrs. Ace is... And do you the... play this strong no-trump? The strong... We do. It's the best method. Oh, sure. We can play the strong no-trump. I'm sure it won't make any difference to Mrs. Ace. Well, but... now, that's fine. Now, see there? Everything's arranged just right. Yes. Now, uh, what do you say to uh, a little... Lunch? I'm not hungry. 
Oh, you're not. But my pets, we thought we'd have a bite to eat first. I've just had my breakfast. Oh, this late? I slept late, Mr. Ace. Oh, yes. You see, we got to bed so late last night. And fell asleep so much later, Mr. Ace. Uh, yes, we fell asleep uh, oh. so much later. Well, uh, would you rather just run out to the home and take a look around now? I or... warn you, Mr. Ace, the price will have to be just right or there'll be no sale at all. I have no mood to be trifled with. Well, we might be able to arrange the price. I feel sure we can arrange your mood. What's that? Uh, well, suppose we leave the details until tomorrow to talk about. I mean, we can look over the home first, have our little bridge game tonight, and then maybe tomorrow we can settle the whole thing. How does that strike you? Well, you keep telling me so many different things, Mr. Selby. I wish you'd make up your mind just how but you... every hand calls for a different sort of bid, Mrs. A. Every hand has its own problem. You must learn them all. But I haven't time to learn everything before tonight, have I? There isn't that much time in the world, my dear Mrs. Ace. Now, now, Mrs. Selby. Mrs. Ace, will you please... Oh, I don't know what... Oh, I don't know how I can learn all this. I can't have you standing behind me telling me what to do while we're playing. Perhaps you'd like to have me phone you. Phone? Say, there's an idea. What idea? You can telephone me. Why, that's good. You can keep calling me up all through the game, and I can go to the phone and tell you what my hand is, and you can tell me just how to play it and how to bid and everything. Well, I never... Well, you'll just be like another lesson. I'll pay you for it. Oh, you'll pay me? Mm-hmm. Well, I get extra for night work, you know, Mrs. Ace. Oh, I'll pay anything, just so I can surprise him. Now, look, we'll have the game, and Mr. Ace is damn. It's nice and comfortable in there. Then when the phone rings in the living room, I can go out and answer it, and I can tell you what my hand is, and you can tell me what to do. I'll talk kind of soft so they can't hear. But how will I know when to call you? Well, we'll start playing about half past eight, and then you can start calling. You can call ever so often, and I'll answer the I phone. I never heard of such an idea. Yes, isn't it good? I'm so excited, and won't he be surprised when I play good? Well, I guess I better hurry home and make sure our phone's not out of order. Now, you'll be sure to keep calling me up. But, Mrs. Ace, I've tried to teach you a few... Oh, of the... I'll try to remember some of the things, like what you just said about when somebody bids two or something to start with, uh, uh, what did you say it was, a command? A demand bid, yes. You must bid when your partner makes an original bid of two. I must bid when my partner makes... Like this hand I was showing you just a moment ago. Uh, here it is. You had to bid two clubs, didn't you? Two clubs, yes. Well, that immediately gives your partner information that you want the bidding kept open. You have a very large hand. Now, here. I was your partner. When you bid two, I must bid. I understand. I take you out in my best suit. Now, now, Mr. Selby, I have no time for foolishness. I told you I'm a married woman. Not just because I'm letting you call me up tonight. Now, there's a scheme for you. If it works, it looks like Mr. Ace's plan to get Mrs. Hudson in a good mood is shot to pieces. We'll learn more about it when next we meet the Easy Aces. an all-important bridge game takes place at the Aces Bungalow. Mr. Ace is trying to get Mr. and Mrs. Hudson in a good enough mood to buy a piece of property. Mrs. Hudson loves to win at bridge. 
Mr. Ace is sure they can win from him and Jane. Jane, in the meanwhile, wanting to surprise Mr. Race with how well she plays, has made arrangements with a bridge instructor to keep calling her up while the game is in progress and tell her how to play. The scene is at the Aces, and here are Mr. Ace and mine. Listen. So why does she insist on playing in my den? I mean, all these years we've been playing bridge out here, and tonight she Oh, has... why make such a fuss about that? She's fixing things up right smartly in there. Bridge table's all up, refreshments. Oh, but why couldn't we do it out here? Oh, uh, she says she doesn't want any disturbances. Disturbances? What does that mean? Search me. That's the word you use, disturbances. Oh, now, is now, she going... Now, all you're interested in is having the Hudsons win at bridge, aren't you? Yes, but I mean... Well, no doubt you... they will. All Jane has to do is to run through to form. Oh, I'm not afraid of that. But what does she mean, disturbances? I don't... Well, there's a disturbance, for instance, the phone. I'll answer. I hope they didn't decide not to come. It's a quarter to nine. They ought to be Hello? Here. Hello? Yes, this is North 4345. Oh, was that phone for me? I don't know. Marge is answering it. What did you say? I, I can't hear you. There's someone... I said, is that for me? I still can't hear you. Is that for me? Mrs. Ace? Yes, just a minute. It's for you, Jane. For me, huh? Well, uh, dear, we should be playing. You said half past eight. Well, can I help it if they're late? But what time do you think they'll get here? Well, they said about half past eight. Well, we should have been playing all hey, this time. Hey, aren't you going to answer this phone? Oh, yes. Well, I don't know just what to... Well, I better answer it, I guess. You better answer it? What's gotten into you? Hello? Yes, this is... Yeah. Yes, I know. Um, not yet. Uh, goodbye, then. <laughs> that was short and sweet. What was that? Uh, wrong number, I guess. Wrong number? <laughs> what was that not yet? Not yet what? You said not yet, just now on the phone. What was that? Oh, all... I'm busy, dear. I have to finish putting out the ashtrays. And listen, why do we have to play in there? We always have our bridge games out here. Why all this... Oh, there's so much disturbance out here. There, that's the word. I told you. What kind of disturbance? Oh, any kind. I can't play my best when things are going on. Oh, uh, you're going to play your best tonight? Yes, I am. Uh, I only hope you do. <laughs> well, I will. You'll see. Yeah, your best will be just right. Oh, so if I want to play my best, I'd like to play where it's nice and quiet, like in your den. Oh, well, I guess I better go and hurry fixing things up. They ought to be here now, dear. I, I told him half past eight. You told who? No, uh, you told me half past eight, I mean. Didn't you say half past eight? Yes, but I didn't put it in writing. What difference does it make if we start a few minutes later? Well, I hate people that are impromptu. <laughs> impromptu? Well, don't start hating these people. I've got a deal on with them. And if they want to come late, it's all right with me. The customer is always right, you know. Oh, <clears throat> there they are. I'll answer it. Oh, no, you better let me, Jane. You don't even know. Hello? Jane, it's not the phone. It's the door. Hello? Will you get her to put that phone down? I'll let them in. Jane, it's the door. The Hudson's are here. Oh, uh, just a minute. Ace will let him in. Now, calm down, James. Why don't you take it easy? Well, good evening, folks. Oh, hello, Mr. Ace. How are you? Good evening, Mrs. Hudson. Good evening. Uh, sorry we're a little late. That's quite all right. Uh, dinner was a little late tonight. All right. Right in here, if you please. Oh, uh, Jane, this is, uh, Mrs. Hudson. Oh, pleased to meet your acquaintance. Oh, you do. This is Mr. Hudson. Pleased to meet your acquaintance. Good evening, Mrs. Ace. Oh, Miss Hale, uh, uh pet. Hale. Oh, I met Miss Hale at Mr. Ace's office the other day. Oh, a five-handed game. Oh, no, no, Miss Hale isn't playing. Just the four of us. Oh, uh, but... can I take your hat, Mrs. Hudson? Thank you. Oh, it's lovely. Thank you. I'll just throw my hat right here somewhere. Well, it's lovely, Mr. Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, that old pattern. Well, I might as well make myself useful as well as ornamental. I'll take charge of that thing, Jane. All right. She's such a dear. Yes. Um, Mrs. Ace thought we'd be more comfortable playing in my den. Oh, uh, fine, fine. All those is quite nice out here. Yes, I like 
about your home, Miss Day. Oh, but of course, it's nothing like the place you're thinking of buying. Oh, no, no, no business talk tonight. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, I guess we might as well adjourn to the gaming table. Well, it's right you here, Mrs. Hudson. Thank you. I thought it would be more quiet in here. Yes, might as well get started right away, I guess. <clears throat> Feel lucky tonight. Yes, I do, too. Well, we shall see. I hope so. Uh, right in here. Well, I see you have everything all set up. All ready for action. Yes, I thought we were going to start at half past eight. Well, we'll make up for lost time. Uh, shall we sit? By all means. Just uh, choose your places, eh? Well, uh, these are all right, right here. Fine. Uh, Jane, just sit over there. Is everybody comfortable? Yes, there? everything's all right. Oh, new card. That's good. Yes, sir. Uh, shall we uh, cut for deal? Well, you can start, Mr. Race, if you like. Okay. Yes, really doesn't matter, as long as we're playing a set game all evening. Yes, we're playing a set game, all right. Well, now, suppose you start the deal. Okay. Uh, here you are, Mr. Race. You can shuffle these while your partner deals. All right. Oh, I see you're already in the game. Yes, we lost no time. Oh, uh, sit down, Marge. Oh, please don't sit back of me, Miss Hale. I'm very nervous when somebody's looking over oh, my shoulder. Oh, uh, you can sit here, Miss Hale. I'm not nervous at all. Thank you. Maybe I'd better just circulate around. Sort of a roving temperature, yeah. huh? <laughs> oh, that's the phone. I'll answer. Oh, well, I'll go, Marge. It's for me, I guess. Excuse me, please. Uh, certainly. Make up, make a snappy, Jane, so we can start playing. I'll be back in a kidney. We're playing in here so that there won't be any disturbances, and the disturbances are starting already. I hate interruptions. Take my mind off the game. Yes, I do too, Mrs. Hudson. Marge, why don't you make yourself monitor the disturbances so we can have a nice, quiet game? Well, I tried to answer that phone, but Jane... Well, after this, you take care of things. Aye, aye, sir. Well, uh, as soon as she gets back, I guess we can start the first yes, hand. Well, that was quick. Uh, who was it, Jane? Oh, nobody. It was just... Uh, it wasn't important. Is it my bid? No, no. I dealt, and I'm thinking of bidding if everybody's ready. Uh, pick up your cards, Jane. I am. You play the strong no trump, Mrs. Ace. Uh, yes, she plays the strong no trump. We'll all play it. Strong no trump makes the best game. Yes. Your bid, Mr. Ace. Well, I'll start the bidding off with uh, two clubs. I pass. Well, Jane. Uh, just a minute now. Uh, you pass, Mrs. Hudson? I pass. Yeah, I bid two clubs and Mrs. Hudson pass. Uh, two clubs, huh? Mm. Uh, up to you, Mrs. Ace. Uh, mustn't hesitate. Either bid yes, or... Yes, uh... Jane, either bid or... Uh, was that the phone? Phone? No, there was no phone, Jen. If there is, I'll answer it. No, the phone rings, I'll answer what it. Please, Mrs. Ace, it's your bid. Two clubs. I pass, and it's up to you. Well, uh, two clubs. I guess I. Oh, come, um... come, come, Mrs. Ace. Uh, what do you do? Do you pass, Jane? Well, I guess I might. Oh, there he is. Excuse me, please. Well, I'll go, Jane. No more, for me. Oh. Let me answer it. Oh, but, Jane, I'm not playing. I'll answer it. Just take a second. Well, leave your cards here. I'll be back with Jenny there. I hate interruptions. Yes, so do I, Mrs. Hudson. I'm sorry. Maybe this will be the last. Marge, why don't you answer well, the... card? I think she was going to pass. Shall I bid, or... Well, I don't think she was going to pass. You play the two demand, don't you, Mr. H? Yes, but, uh... Well, surely she would bid. Well, you can't tell about her, Mrs. Hudson. I think she was saying she was passing, but... Well, uh, shall I bid? Oh, I don't know. You, you can, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I don't think that's fair. I think the least we can do is to wait for Mrs. H to either bid or pass. Well, maybe we ought to, then. It doesn't really make any difference to me if you want to go on and... Well, you play her hand, Miss Hale. Well, she took the cards with her. Yes, what was that? Maybe thinking? we'd better wait... Let's hope this is the last interruption we'll have. Oh, it will be, Mrs. Hudson. Marge, I insist that you I'll answer... I'll do the best I can. I bid two no Trump. What? I bid two no Trump. You bid two Trump, didn't you? Yes, he did. Uh, but weren't you going to pass before you left the room? Pass? When your partner bids two of something, you have to bid. Even if you haven't anything, you have to bid two no Trump. Just to show him you have to anything. Please, please. After all, don't you think that's giving your partner too much information? Well, in bridge, you have to have to give your partner information. Yes, but not openly like that. 
Like what? Oh, wait a minute. Where did you find out you have to... I mean, will you please play your usual game? Oh, surprise, huh? Surprise? Yes, you bid two clubs and I said two no chunks. Kind of got you, didn't I? Got... What are you... This is a bridge game. Will you please? Sure, it's a bridge game. And in a bridge game, when your partner bids two of something, two of anything, even clubs, you have to bid. It's a demand. Yes, will will you please? uh, You can't get over it, can you? Get over it. I'm trying to get over this bid. Oh, you will in time, I guess. Hold your cards back, dear. uh, Oh, yes. Will you please? Well, the first rule of bridge is not to let anybody see your hand. Well, I got excited. I just didn't... Going on. Uh, two bid is going on here. You bid two of something, and I said two no trumps. Bridge is a game of information, and I gave my partner information, which is more than some people do, if you know what I mean. Uh, hold your cards up here. Everybody's doing I'm that. holding them. Now, that's better. Now, don't forget what I did. I did two no trumps. Well, don't look so surprised, dear. I'm not looking surprised. Yeah, Excuse him for a minute, Mrs. Hatton. He's so surprised, he's going to... Well, hide. really, is this customary in bridge? Customary? Uh, not in the bridge that's played around here. Well, I should hope not. After all, this is for money. Oh, by the way, we didn't decide on how much we were playing for. Oh, yes. We but... usually play for a half a cent a point. A half? Well, that's fine. Mm, but can... I don't know now. If Mrs. H plays this way, maybe we'd better just play for a quarter. Oh, a half is all right. Oh, we don't... but you can lose a lot of money at a half. Oh, we don't care. I mean, don't worry about I that I think part. a half is all right. Well, let's make it a quarter of a cent. Uh, how about a cent, please? He was surprised, wasn't he? What? Jane, do you want to play for a quarter or a half? Yes, what do you want to play for? Oh, what do I want to play for? Well, now, let me see. Quarter percent all right with you? Well, I don't know. Now, let me think. Think about what? You either want to play for a quarter or a half. What's there to think about? Well, you have to think in bridge, dear. When did you start thinking in bridge? I mean, will you please make oh, that a... that is. I'll get it. Uh, no, now, more. Oh, sit down. No, please. I'm going to answer it for me. Excuse me, please. So, Lizzie, this is the most This exciting. is getting a little monotonous, for sure. I assure you, it won't happen again, Mr. Hudson. Marge, when she gets through, will you go in there and take the receiver off the hook? Oh, That'll put a stop to all this. Must be some of these women around here calling up about clothes, you Yes, know, and... but in the middle of a bridge game. I, I don't have that many calls a day at my office. Well, neither do we, usually. It just had to happen at a time like... A 20th. What? A 20th of a Santa point. That's what I ought to pe- play for. A 20th of a Santa point. <laughs> well, at a 20th, the aces can't lose much. And if Marge takes the phone off the hook, it looks like they're a cinch to lose. But we learn whether they do or not when next we meet the Easy Aces. The Easy Aces, probably from 1946 and certainly from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog is the audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. The lives of women in the Old West were not only harder, they were far more diverse than the stereotypes of dutiful homemaker wives and mothers on the one hand, and the tough prostitutes, crooks, and Annie Oakleys on the other. Some of that variety is evident in the character of Miss Kitty Russell, who's a little bit of, well, several of those things, as we'll hear over the next couple of episodes. Here's the first one, called... Tap Day for Kitty. It comes from July 30th, 1955, CBS and Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. 
Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. Oh, Mr. Hightower, how are you this morning? Fine, fine, thank you. Hello, Matt. Well, hello, Kitty. What are you doing in here this time of day? Uh, Just looking for a little shelter. What? (laughs) From his son. Yeah, I figure I can keep the peace in here as well as out there in that heat. Well, you're that lazy. We better go sit down. Yeah, you know, that's a good idea. Oh, there's a table over there next to olive and cake. Oh, okay. Say, uh, who's the old man they're sitting with? I don't know. He came in just before you did. (laughs) Hey, Kitty. Kitty, you're missing all the fun. (laughs) I don't hear your friend laughing. Oh, he's crazy. Hello, Marshall. Hello, Olive. Okay. Marshall, sit down. Uh, no, no, thanks, Kate. Oh, We're gonna come sit on, on. Marshall, Kitty. Uh, shall we, Kitty? Okay. Kitty, you gotta hear this. What'd you say your name is, old man? Well, I ain't so old. Uh, my name is Nip Colors. Nip Colors? <laughs> I, ain't a, I, I ain't a day over 60. Or a day under. <laughs> Tell me, how come you never been to Dodge before? I only just bought me a ranch down on Crooked Creek. What's that got to do with it? I ain't never been in Kansas before. I made my money mining out in Arizona. I'm I'm rich now. My ma died. You mean your wife? No, no. Ma, my, my mama. Mama, she was real old. She kind of crippled up, but she died, and now I can get married. You mean that a man your age has never been married? I was, but she died a long time ago. You have any kids? Some, but they all run off soon as they got big enough. <laughs> now, this is kind of sad, Matt. Yeah. So you come to Dodge looking for a wife, huh? Yeah, I'm going to find me one, too. What makes you think you're going to find one here? Well, there's women here. I figured I'd look them over. And take your pick. Well, how else? Listen... There isn't enough gold in the world to get me to marry an old, ugly coot like you. Me either. You're about as romantic as a turkey buzzard. Huh? <laughs> Why, I've seen water dogs I'd sooner cuddle. 
I wouldn't get any closer to you than I am now to save me from hanging. Olive, that's mean. Well, look at him. Well, he can't help it. I mean, you don't have to talk to him like that. He's an old fool. He isn't doing you any harm, Kate. No, no. I don't mean to do no harm. But I gotta find a wife. You don't need a wife. You need a bell around your neck and one leg tied on. I've had enough of this. No, kidding. I'll handle this. Olive, you and Kate get out of here and leave him alone. What? You heard me. Get out, both of you. Since when did you start running things around here? You ever see me fight? Kitty, will you take it easy? You girls will look like scarecrows when I'm done with you. You're first, Olive. Get up. Look, I, I don't want any trouble with you, Kitty. Then get away from this table. I'm, I'm going. You too, Kate. Sure. We don't want to talk to him anyway. You got to excuse him, mister. They learn all that talk from the cowboys and such that come in here. Uh, they said that uh, your name is Kitty? Yeah, that's right. Well, you're very nice, Kitty. Oh, sometimes a woman can handle women better than a man can. But you're pretty, too. Yeah. Well, you better stay out of here, Nip. Go look for a wife someplace else. Well, I, I don't have to. What? Not now. I found one. You have? You. Me? Sure. I didn't want either of them to. I was just looking them over, but I like you fine. You make a good wife. Now, look, Nip, don't you go getting any ideas. It's okay, Kitty. I'll take care of everything. I'll be I... back in a few days. Well, wait, I... We'll get married then. Matt? <laughs> Oh, well, well, Kitty, and it looks like you got yourself into something, doesn't it? Try to be nice to somebody. Try to do a good deed. See what happens. Oh, well, I I wouldn't worry about it. Maybe maybe you'll forget about it. You think so? No. Well, what am I going to do? Why don't you marry him, Kitty? You ever see me fight? <laughs> no, Kitty. stage come in, Mr. Dillon. Oh? No, didn't you think it would, Chester? Oh, yes, sir. Sure, I I knew it would. It was awful late, though. Oh, was it? Huh. Yes, sir, it was late. Oh, uh, well, why? Well, I declare I don't know. I, I didn't bother to ask. Oh, oh, I see, I see. Uh, well, what else is new, Chester? Well, sir, 
Nothing I know of. You know, Chester, you ought to stay in the office more and keep out of the sun. Oh, well, the sun's already went down, Mr. Dillon. Well, now, that's something new. I hadn't noticed that. Well, yes, sir, you're right. It has. Well, yes, sir, it sure has. <laughs> Matt. Oh, hello, Kitty. Come on in. Even Miss Kitty. Chester. Matt, you gotta do something. What? Well, what's the trouble? That Nip Colors is back. I say, I want to get a look at him. Yeah, well, you will, Chester. He's back already, huh? It's been three days, and he's sure been busy. Well, what do you mean? Well, first he's gone and bought a lot of new clothes. Got himself all dooted up. Well, he needed it. Well, that's not the point. They're wedding clothes. Oh? He came into the Long Branch wearing them. He's over there now buying drinks for the house. Celebrating. I nearly died of shame, Matt. Everybody laughing at him and at me... I left. I got out. Well, that's funny, Kitty. I, I'd have thought you'd have got mad or laughed it off yourself. Matt, he's serious. I don't know how to stop him. And what's more, I am mad now. That's why I came here. Oh. I ran into the preacher on the street. And you know what he said? He's real pleased he's going to marry me and nip colors tomorrow. That old fool's gone and set up a wedding. Oh, my goodness. It's got to oh. stop. It's got to stop, Matt. You've got to help me. Well, Kitty, please, I... Please, Matt. Oh, sure, Kitty. Of course I will. I'll go over there now and see what I can do. Well, I'm going with you. Well, you don't have to, Kitty. I want to. Bar, talking to Olive. Yeah. Now maybe he's changed his mind. I doubt it. Now look at that beaver hat. <laughs> he must be rich. Matt, he's crazy. He's awful crazy. Oh. Easy now, Kitty. It's gonna be all right. Hey, Kitty. Oh no, Kitty. Hey, shut up some drinks, bartender. Uh, Sam. No, never mind. Well, what? Oh, you're the marshal, ain't you? Yeah, that's right. So you come to the wedding, too, marshal. Uh, everybody's invited. Yeah, I'm going. Yeah. I wouldn't miss it for nothing. You'll miss the next two days if you don't shut up, Olive. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look, uh, colors. Kitty says that she doesn't want to marry you. Well, yeah, she told me that, too. Do you know how women are, Marshal? Kind of bashful-like. Hi! <laughs> Kitty isn't a bashful woman, Colors. She doesn't want to marry you. Now, can't you understand that? But uh, she can't back out now. Oh, for mercy's sake. It's no use talking to her, I Matt. gotta have me wife, and I decided on her. That's how it's gonna be. And I'm coming by for her noon tomorrow... And we're going to get churched. You come by at noon tomorrow or any other time, and I'm going to be waiting with a shotgun to blow your head off, and I mean it. I think she does. Well, no, uh, uh, that ain't no way to talk, Kitty. All right, colors, the talking's over. What? You get out of town or I'm going to lock you up. 
Lock me up. In jail, and you'll stay there till you're ready to quit bothering people. Well, now, whoever heard of going to jail for wanting to get married? You see? I'm not going to argue with you, Colors. Now you take your choice right now. You're the meanest marshal I ever met. I, I, I just ain't going to jail. All right, Colors, come on. No, let me go now. I'll leave. I don't want to go to jail. All right, then get out. Well, I'm going. But I'll be back, Kitty. You'll see. And I'll be waiting with a shotgun. Oh, oh Kitty. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> you let me know if he does come back, huh, Kitty? You'll know. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, sure. a good dinner, though. <laughs> turkey and chocolate size. Well, can you imagine that? Turkey and chocolate. <laughs> doc. Yeah, huh? Hey, Doc. What? Over here. Oh. <laughs> I didn't see you standing there, Matt. Well, I don't like standing in the light very much. Oh, no, I don't blame you. Oh, where you been? On a call? No, I had a late supper. I was busy until, oh, after 10 o'clock tonight. No. I was over at Delmonico's? No, I wasn't. I went to that new Mexican place. I had some of their turkey and chocolate sauce. <laughs> Say, you tried that? Yeah, it's good, too. Yes, it, it is. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I'll turn in now. Okay. Wait a minute, Doc. Why, it's Chester. Mr. Dillon, you better come, too, Doc. Well, what's the trouble, Chester? Out back the stable. Old Nip Colors, he's been shot. What? Yes, sir. With a shotgun. <laughs> Well, Doc, how does he look? He looks like a Virginia ham just sprinkled with cloves. Well, now, that's no way for a doctor to talk. I've been shot. It isn't my talk you should be worrying about. It's whether I can dig all those pellets out. That's going to be quite a task. Yes, sir, that's going to be quite a task. Well, why don't you get started? Before I die, die. Oh, be quiet. You better get him up to my office, man. I'll need better light than that lantern of Chester's. Well, one lantern's all I can get, Doc. You know, I ain't in the habit of carrying more than a half dozen around with me. Never mind, Chester. Excuse me, Doc. Would you let me get on there, please? Oh, yes. Colors, what happened? Who shot you? Hey, you got gall asking a dying man foolish questions? Doc doesn't think you're going to die, Colors. Now tell me, did you hear or see anybody? Uh, how could I see who shot me in the back? I mean before that or, or after that. I didn't care after. I just lay here hoping they wouldn't pepper me again. And before it happened? I didn't see nobody. But I can tell you who it was. You heard her. Kitty. He said she was going to shoot me with a shotgun, too. Now, wait a minute. 
She said she'd shoot you if you came back bothering her, but that would just talk. Kitty wouldn't shoot anybody. No. Look at my back. Where'd the shot come from, Colors? Out there, by the water trough. Chester. Yes, sir? Bring that lantern, will you? Let's see what we can find over there. What, you mean you're going to leave us here in the dark? Well, it'll rest your eyes, Doc. You're going to need them. Come on, Chester. Hey, what if they're still around, Mr. Dillon? Won't they take a shot at us? It's not us they're after, Chester. Here, hold that lantern down by the ground here where it's muddy, will you? Okay. Wait a minute. Hmm? No, back here, Chester. There. Look at that. Well, I do declare, Mr. Dillon, them is woman footprints. Yeah. Kitty. Come on in, Kitty. What's this all about, Matt? Chester won't tell me a thing. Well, sit down and I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Must be serious to have me dragged away from work at midnight. Yes, it, it is, Kitty. It hasn't got something to do with old nipped colors again, has it? Have you heard anything? No. Well, what, Matt? He got shot. Got shot? About a half hour ago by a woman. She used a shotgun. You're thinking I did. Well, you were talking about doing it, weren't you? I sure was. And you know something else? I went out to get some air about an hour ago. I took a walk. Alone. And I got back just before Chester came in. I don't even have an alibi. Yeah. So, as soon as the word gets around, there are going to be a lot of people thinking you did it. Sure. Olive was there, too. She heard you threaten him. Uh, she'll be real pleased to testify against me. Yeah. Kitty, uh, might be easier for you if you... Laid low till I find out who did this, huh? How do you know I didn't? Well, I don't know. Not that way. Not so as I could prove it legally. All right, Matt. I'll lay low. Mr. Dillon. Yeah, what is it, Chester? Somebody just went upstairs to dock. So? I seen her out the window here. Her? Yes, sir. It was some old woman. And she seemed like she was in an awful hurry.
Hello. Where is he? Are you looking for Doc? They told me he was here. The man at the stable did. They said the doctor brought him here. Oh, you mean Nip Colors? Where is he? Well, Doc's working on him in the back room there. He got shot. I know he got shot. Here, now, wait a minute. Oh. You're the marshal, ain't you? Who is she, ma'am? We'd all like to know that. Who are you, ma'am? I'm Nettie Beecher. Now, let me go, Marshal. I've got to see him. He's not going to die. You sure? Well, I thought maybe you'd come to finish him off. No, I come to see him and tell him I'm sorry. I got mad when I said he was going to get married. Oh? Well, were you engaged to him or something? Well, I thought I was. I've been with him 20 years, cleaning his house, cooking his food, raising his kids, nursing his old crippled ma... All them years, he kept saying he'd get married again when his ma died. You thought he meant you? Who else would have him? Him and his crazy ways. Why, I didn't believe it when he said some girl here was going to marry him. I didn't believe a word of it. Nettie, I'm the girl he was talking about. No, well, I'm right, ain't I? Girl like you marrying him? I told him no. If you didn't believe it, why did you shoot him? Oh, I didn't aim to kill him. I only wanted to hurt him some. But why? Because he never looked at me. Twenty years and he never once looked at me. But I'm sorry now. And that's why I'll come here. What's going on in here? I will tell you later, Doc. Right now, this lady would like to see colors. Can she come in? Well, does she have to? Yeah, she has to. All right. You come with her. I don't want any trouble in there. There he is, lady. Mr. Cullors. Nip. Well, what in tarnation are you doing here? Well, I'm sorry I done it. Well, you done it? It is me. You shot me? Made me mad you're going off trying to marry some other woman. He made you mad? Why? After 20 years waiting, you ask me that? What? You've been waiting for me? Ever since I come to work for you. After your wife died. Well, you never told me that, Nettie. Ain't for a woman to speak up. Well, you sure never did. Till tonight. Oh, you sure spoke up tonight. There comes a time when a woman has to, Nip. Hold your tongue for 20 years and then blow me up with a shotgun? Well, you're quite a woman, Nitty. Funny. I never noticed that. You ain't looked at me in 20 years. I'm looking at you now. Uh, Doc. Yes? There isn't going to be any trouble. No. Come on. Well, what happened? Oh, they're talking, Kitty. Well, of course they're talking. What about? <laughs> well, let's say that you just lost yourself a bridegroom. <sighs> well, I can't say I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know something, Ma? What? I lost him to a pretty good woman.
Gunsmoke. Produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Michael Ann Barrett, and Virginia Gregg. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Tap Day for Kitty, an episode of Gunsmoke from midsummer 1955 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org, and we encourage you to visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. On Dragnet tonight, a terrifying kidnapping case. It's from the show's first season, before it started to give titles to its episodes. This one comes from September 10th, 1949, and the NBC series Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. A 22-year-old girl has disappeared. A letter has been received. It demands $30,000 for the girl's return. The letter is signed, The Wolf. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, October 18th. It was cloudy in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the stats office, and it was 3.26 a.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Got those mud gas ports up here. They are. Thanks, Harris. Backstrand, leave you? In a minute. I'm going out with him. What's the address out there? The Sullivan Place. 814 Castro Boulevard. You go straight out Santa Monica, take a left at Castro. I remember. You ready, Chief? Yeah, man. Friday, you call Romero yet? Right now. Get on it. This one we don't fool with. Yeah. Come on, Harris. Hello? Sorry to wake you, Ben. This is Joe. How are you feeling? Oh, hi, Joe. What time is it? 3.30 a.m. How do you feel? Oh, a lot better. Be back to work tomorrow. You'll be ready in 20 minutes. I'll pick you up. 20 minutes? Okay, what's up? You remember Martin Sullivan, vice president of the Third National Bank? Sullivan? Yeah, yeah, what about it? Got a 22-year-old daughter, or he had one. She's gone.
good time, Joe. Where are we headed? Sullivan home out on Castro Boulevard. Ed's out there now with Harris. Any leads to work on? No, nothing so far. The girl disappeared a little before 1 o'clock yesterday afternoon. At 11 last night, he got a letter. They want $30,000. Sullivan hasn't got that kind of money. Yeah, I know it. Poor guy's almost out of his mind. Fill me in. How did it happen? Well, the guy took the girl out of business school. He had her called out of class. Told her her father was sick, said he was a friend of the family. Well, how about the teachers? What was their story? Said the girl didn't want to go with the man at first, but he finally talked her into it. Kept telling her her father was dying. That's about as low as it come? Yeah. Did he use a car? Witnesses said it was a blue sedan. Didn't get the license number or the make. Did they remember what the guy looked like? About 5'9", 160, brown suit, dark hair. Hmm. Nothing else? No. Here's a copy of the letter. The usual. Read it. Yeah. Yeah. I have your daughter, Judy. Get, uh, what, what's that? $30,000. $30,000 quick if you want her back alive. Don't call police or I'll kill her. Contact you later. Signed, uh, what was it? The Wolf. Oh, Wolf. I could think of a better name. Come on, here we are. Who's got the original note, Joe? Lee Jones down at the crime lab. He's checking it for prints and handwriting. Well, if he was... Oh, hi, Dave. Uh, right on in the house, boys. Just waiting for you. Thanks, Dave. Hi, Joe. Ben. In the living room. Mm, thank you. That's the way I see it, Mr. Sullivan. Now, you understand exactly what you have to do? Yes, sir. Uh, I'll do as you say. All right. Here are the two men who will help you. Sergeant Friday and Sergeant Romero. Homicide. Yes, sir. How, How do you do? I'll do. Mr. Backstrand, I, uh, I, are you sure about all this? He, he, he might get frightened. He, he might do something to Judy. I... Believe me, Mr. Sullivan, it's the only way. I know how you must feel, but we can't do anything else. Oh, all right, I, I want to see Mrs. Sullivan first. I, I'll be ready in a moment. Any developments? Yeah. Come on back in the dining room. There it is on the table. Second note from the guy. Telegram. When did this come? About half an hour ago. Guy phoned it into Western Union from a public booth. Couldn't trace it. I'll see, Joe. Yeah. Be at Elysian Park, 5 o'clock this morning, near Balkan Drive. Come alone. Bring 30000 We'll return girl. Don't tell cops. Kill her if you do. The wolf. 4 a.m. now, Skipper. Not much time. I know it. We'll have to do as he says. No other way. Then Sullivan's going out there alone? You're going with him. You and Romero. You'll be hidden out in the trunk of the car. Any plan? Get him. That's all. Ben and I went out the back door and into the Sullivan garage. We jammed ourselves into the trunk compartment and Harris closed the door on us. The latch was fixed so that the door could be pushed open from the inside. A few minutes later, Mr. Sullivan came out, got in the car, and we drove off. At three minutes to five, we pulled up at the meeting place in Elysian Park. We waited. Nothing happened. At five minutes past five, it started to thunder. That's all we need now. Thunderstorm. Stuff in here in this trunk, isn't it? Listen. 
He's pacing up and down alongside the car, doesn't he? Now, listen. Can't hear anything else. Can you? No. We better stay undercover. Yeah. I'm a rain-start man. Wonder what happened to the wolf. Cold feet, maybe. Let's wait it out. time you got now? Move over a little Let me get my watch of it. Yeah. A little past 5.30. Sergeant. Sergeant. Mr. Sullivan? Yes. Do you think he's coming? Sleep. It's getting daylight. We better wait it out, Mr. Sullivan. Now, look, don't come back here again. If he's watching, you might tip him off. Oh. oh all right. All right. Contact you there. All right. All right, Chief. Ben, Joe, come on over to the car. What's the story, Ed? Guy had no intention of following through with this meeting tonight. Well, how come? He told us. Going at five o'clock. Tried to trace the call. He wouldn't stay on the line long enough. What did he have to say? He wanted more money. Bragged about how smart he was. How we'd never get him. But he knows Sullivan's called in the police. Sure. Said he didn't care. We'd never get him anyway. Pretty cocky. Pretty smart. Take my word for it. He's no dummy. Control 1 to 80K. Control 1 to 80K. I'll get it. 80K to Control 1. 80K to Control 1. Go ahead. 80K, go to your office. Code 3. Go to your office. Code 3. GMA 367. All right, Romero. Let's roll. More than 12 hours have passed since word of Judy Sullivan's disappearance has been pulled in a homicide. During that time, an all-points bulletin containing the descriptions of the suspect, his car, and the girl had been sent out on the teletype to law enforcement agencies throughout the area. The same descriptions were broadcast over the police radio every hour. The Sullivan home had been placed under strict surveillance, and Mr. Sullivan instructed not to contact the suspect without knowledge of the police. He'd raised almost $10,000 in cash to buy him off. The serial number on each one of the bills had been copied by a police stenographer and then rechecked by a homicide officer. So far, the wolf, as he called himself, had made three separate contacts, but he'd covered his tracks well. We knew that he was somewhere in the city, 500 square miles of it, and we knew we had to find him fast. It was 18 minutes past six when we got back to Homicide. Hi, Chief. Fellas. You got something for us, Mac? Here, this letter. Special delivery. Came in about 25 minutes. Can I see that, Mike? Stay away from Sullivan. If the kid's found dead, it's your fault. Stay away, the wolf. All right, Mike. Get it over to the crime lab and have Lee check it for prints. Right, Chief. Will you find any prints on the second note, Mike? Two. Running through R&I now. Friday, Romero. Get down there and see if they got a make. Right, Ed. Let's go, Ben. Who's watching the Sullivan house beside Harry? Uh, Carpenter and Davis. Backstrand's afraid the girl's father will try to make a deal with the guy. Has he tried it yet? No, he hasn't yet. You couldn't blame him if he did. Word's sick. Oh, yeah. Here we are. Hi, fellas. Just coming down to see you. 
You got something, Larry? Those two prints Lee Jones lifted off that letter got a make on them from the single print file. Good, Larry. Let's see, huh? There it is. Pull the whole package on them. Donald Alfred Kiefer. Looks like a real bad one, doesn't he? Donald Alfred Kiefer, male, Caucasian, age 29, 5 feet 8 inches, 170 pounds, brown eyes, dark brown hair. He had one previous arrest for forgery in Los Angeles 10 months before. Kiefer's occupation at the time of his arrest was listed as bank clerk at the Third National Bank. Ben went back into the files and pulled the crime report. Then we called Ed Backstrand. There's the answer, Skipper. At the time Kiefer pulled that forgery job at the bank, Mr. Sullivan was one of the vice presidents. Mm, go on. Sullivan was the one who preferred charges against Kiefer and saw that he was prosecuted. Where's this Kiefer now? Oh, let me see. He was placed on probation, and on May 16th this year, he returned to his home in Omaha, Nebraska. That's 1380 Mackinac Avenue. All right, Romero. Get Omaha on the phone and have them check out Kiefer. Right, Skipper. Friday, take Kiefer's package and this note down to Don Myers. Have him check the handwriting. And get over to the crime lab and see what Jones lifted off that last letter we got. All right, Ed. The faster we work, the faster we'll put this guy behind bars. Now move. How's the writing compared, Don? What'd you find? Yeah, looks good. See here? Slants as crosses, double loops as L's, open A's, pressure on the downstroke. Donald Kiefer, Wolf, same handwriting. Lifted three prints off this last note, Joe. Brought them out to the iodine fume gun. They match with the first. Thanks, Lee. Did you find anything else? I don't know if it'll help you much. We examined the paper for watermarks and texture... Both notes are written on the same kind of paper. Impressions show both pieces of paper from the same tablet. Check the density of the carbon and the pencil they used. Both specimens match. Same pencil. By mid-afternoon, Donald Keeper's description had been broadcast throughout the area. Bulletins were dispatched to all departments, and an APB was teletyped to the entire state. Men were stationed at every post office in the city to watch for notes that might come through the mail. The bus depots, railroad terminals, the airports, and all the main roads leading out of the city were under strict surveillance. The entire Los Angeles area was broken down into single square mile districts and a house-to-house canvas was started. A squad of men were assigned to cover each square mile. Outlying towns and cities were requested to do the same. By 5 o'clock that afternoon, the greatest dragnet operation in the history of the city was underway. We were sure Donald Kiefer was somewhere inside. At 12 minutes past 5, Ben got the call back from the Omaha police. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. 6X-ray 419. Nebraska place, right. Well, thank you a lot. Yeah, bye. They had a make of the car. Lots more. The Omaha cops are looking for Keeper, too. Want him for a robbery there two months ago. Yeah? And that robbery used a stolen 1939 blue sedan. Nebraska license plate, 6X-ray 419. How about his family and his friends back there? They all been checked? Yeah. Well, get that car description to communications, huh? APB, teletype, and broadcast. I'll tell him. Yeah, right, Joe. Right in, Romero. Yeah, what are you tied up with? Well, just got a call from Omaha. Make on Keeper in the car. Give it to me. You two get out to the Sullivan house as fast as you can. See Harris. What's happened, Skipper? Martin Sullivan's disappeared. All right, Harris. How did it happen? About three this afternoon, Mr. Sullivan got a phone call. Said he had to go down to the bank. I went with him. He had me wait in the reception room, and he went in his office. After waiting ten minutes, I got suspicious and went in. He was gone. That's it. Did he get any more money? This morning. Five thousand dollars. Did you get the serial numbers off the bills? Yeah. Shouldn't have let him get out of my sight. Forget it. Right now, we've got to find out where he's gone to meet Kiefer. Did you talk to Mrs. Sullivan about it, Harris? She 
says she doesn't know anything about it. Let's try her again. Come on, let's go inside. All right, fellas. All right. And where's Miss Sullivan, Dave? Back in the sitting room, lying down. Doctor's with her. Come on. What time you got, Ben? Mm, 6.35. I'll get it. Hello? Well, where are you? Oh. Where are you now? Where are you now? We'll be right out. That was Martin Sullivan. He met with Kiefer. Up in Laurel Canyon. Did he get his daughter back? Yeah. Wrapped in newspapers. All cars in the area were notified that a contact had been made with Kiefer. We got in the car and drove out to Laurel Canyon. The entire area had been blocked off. We found Martin Sullivan standing in the middle of the road at the end of East Winding Way. 500 feet down the hill was a private residence where Sullivan had telephoned us. It was the only building in the immediate vicinity. A few yards beyond the point where East Winding Way ended, back in a clump of tall grass, we found the body of Martin Sullivan's daughter. We notified the crime lab, Chief Backstrand in the corner. Despite a severe state of emotional shock, Martin Sullivan tried to tell us the story. He said... Judy was all right. I believed him. I wanted her back. Judy. I tricked the officer, the one watching me. He said, come along, no police. Did you see his car, Mr. Sullivan? I wanted her back. I wanted Judy back. I... I didn't, she said. I drove here... Six o'clock, and I waited. I put the money on the front seat, like, like you said. Did he get the money, Mr. Sullivan? And I, I got out. I left parking lights on. I stood up there by the end of the road, waiting, Mr. Sullivan. And he drove up. He, he took the money. Then he came up to me. He had a gun. I wanted Judy back. He had a gun. Did you see his car? He said she was up there, beyond the road, tied to a tree. I brought her back. Mr. Sullivan, did you see his car? I went to look for... He drove away. She wasn't there. Pedigree. Couldn't find her. On the way back, I... I saw her bundle on the way back. Let me find her. Before he went into a state of complete collapse, we showed Martin Sullivan a picture of Donald Alfred Kiefer. He definitely identified him. The information was immediately relayed back to Central Division, rebroadcast to the entire police radio system. A teletype was dispatched to sheriff's offices, and communications were sent to police stations throughout the country. 
The house-to-house search throughout the entire city intensified. The dragnet in which we hoped to trap Donald Keeper was drawing slowly inward. It was 12 midnight. Friday, did the papers get a list of the numbers on that ransom money? Yeah, it got them in the final night edition. Two and a half pages of serial numbers gave it a big spread. Look at these pictures of Keeper here, all over the front page. The more the better, Romero. I hope this town never forgets that face. Good reminder. You don't make deals with killers. Hi, fellas. Come on over. Find anything yet, Lee? Just checking over these towels here. Found them wrapped around the girl's body, inside the papers. Funny thing about those papers. What's that, Lee? They're all yesterdays. Every story about the girl's disappearance has been clipped out. Maybe the guy's making up a scrapbook. How about the towels, Jones? Any laundry marks? Not a one so far, Ed. Every one of them was clipped off. Pretty smart. The morgue post the body in? They're doing it now. Yeah, nasty one. Yeah. Did you get any footprints or tire marks out where they found the body? Lots of them. All cast. Bossy and Taylor are checking them. Not one thing. What is it, Jones? I don't know. Under the seam here. This towel. Wait a minute. Joe, that pair of snippers there. Yeah. There you are. Thanks. Press back under the seam. There. That's one tag he missed. Any markings, Lee? Yeah. Greenway Apartments, Los Angeles. One look at the apartment was enough. In an adjoining garage, we found the car which Kiefer had used, a blue sedan. Nebraska license plate, 6X-ray 419. When we got back to the office, Chief Backstrand immediately issued a cancellation of the warrant order for the blue sedan. And then he ordered a detail of men to stake out the car in the event Kiefer decided to come back for it. Here's a coroner's report, Joe. Oh, let's see it. Yeah. Cause of death, strangulation. Time of death, Monday, October 18th, approximately. 2 p.m. One hour after he grabbed her? That can't be right. Skipper in his office? No, he's out for a minute. Hey, Joe, Ben, take the call off 2503, will you? Thanks, Mike. Right. Would you give me the call on 2503, please? Thanks. Hello? Yeah. Yeah, when? We'll be right over. Some of the ransom money, Ben, just showed up. Beverly and Highland. Come on. His name was Ralph Donahue. He operated a used car lot on the corner of Beverly and Highland. He told us that early that morning he sold a dark blue late model coupe to a man who gave his name as Fred Sims. The man paid for the car in cash. Donahue told us that he checked the serial numbers on the bills after the man had driven away. Serial numbers check out, Joe, every one of them. If I only thought to look, officer, and you know I generally do, I'm the suspicious kind anyway, but... Oh, this morning I must have been asleep. You got the full description on the car, Ben? Yeah, Joe. All right, let's get it on the air right away. I saw his mug in the paper while I was waiting for you. Too late. Sorry. Yeah, thanks. At ten minutes past three that afternoon, another piece of the ransom money turned up at a busy downtown department store. The clerk was unable to remember who gave her the bill. The detail throughout the general downtown area was strengthened. The house-to-house search of the entire city for Judy Sullivan's murderer went on. The afternoon dragged into the early evening. At 20 minutes to 7, Ben and I had a hamburger and a cup of coffee in the drugstore at East Broadway and 3rd. And then we got back in the car, checked with communications, and started cruising the neighborhood again. At 9 minutes to 8, a man answering the description of Donald Keeper was seen crossing Sunset Boulevard just below Highland. 
Seven minutes later, the same man was reported near the intersection of Hollywood Boulevard and Las Palmas. Communications relayed the information. At 21 minutes past 8, our car, 80K, along with a dozen others, were concentrated in the Hollywood Boulevard area from Gower Street to La Brea, Franklin Avenue to Santa Monica Boulevard. At 24 minutes past 8, another piece of the ransom money was passed at a cigar store on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Hawthorne Street. The number of men and radio cars in the area was redoubled. Plainclothes officers were stationed at every intersection to keep an eye on pedestrian traffic. At 18 minutes to 9, the dark blue coupe which Kiefer had bought that morning was spotted parked in an alley just below Hollywood Boulevard and Coenga. We called Ed Backstrand. City Hall. 2503. 2503. Chief of Detectives, all this Adam. It's Friday, Mike. Chief there? Yeah, wait a minute. Just going out the door. Ed, it's for you. Backstrand. Friday, Ed. Just spotted Keeper's car, the one he bought this morning, parked in an alley off Coenga. Harris and I are on our way up there now. We'll take care of the car. You take care of this call. Just came in. What do you got? The theater on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard in Fairview. The girl in the box office just took in a $10 ransom bill. Yeah. She got a good look at the man who passed the bill. She says it's Keeper. All right, Ben, come on. Yeah. You've got the list of serial numbers? Right here. Let's check at the window. Yes, sir. How many, please? Police officers. Sergeant Romero, Sergeant Friday. Oh, yes, sir. Mr. Rayburn, the police are here. Would you step around to the side door, Sergeant? Yes, ma'am. Margie, relieve Francis for a minute. Francis, come here. Bring that $10 bill with you. Sharp girl, officer, that Francis. Sharp. Here it is, Mr. Rayburn. Uh, all right, Sergeant. There you are. $10 bill and the list of serial numbers. Check out all right, Ben. That's it, Joe. Good work, man. You reported the man came in about a half hour ago. You're sure it was Kiefer? Yes, sir. I had his picture in the box office just behind the change machine. I recognized him right away. And as far as you know, he hasn't left the theater. That's right, sir. All right, Mr. Rayburn. I'm sorry. I'm afraid we'll have to interrupt the show. Anything you say, Sergeant. Anything. Ben, you keep an eye on the front exit. I'll call communications. All right, Joe. 80K to Control 4. 80K to Control 4. 80K, go ahead. Control 4, clear all frequencies. The Sullivan murder suspect, Donald Kiefer, has been located in the theater on the southeast corner of Hollywood Boulevard in Fairview. Have all units surround the area. 80K, roger. Attention all units. Attention all units. Assist 80K at the theater on the southeast corner of Hollywood Boulevard in Fairview. The Sullivan murder suspect has been located in the theater. Go ahead, 80K. Control 4. Have all units converge in the general area, Hollywood Boulevard and Fairview. Unit 62R to block off the intersection at Hollywood Boulevard and North Cherokee. Stop all pedestrian and vehicular traffic. Unit 61A to block the intersection at Hollywood Boulevard and Hudson Street. Stop all pedestrian and vehicular traffic. Unit 71 and 72R to block the alley behind the theater. Unit 66 and 67R to assist at main entrance to the theater. Within a few minutes, the one-half-mile area around the theater was completely blockaded. Every exit and entrance to the theater was covered. At 9.23, we met Harris and Ed Backstrand in the theater manager's office. Backstrand outlined our plan of operation. At 9.28, a detail of 14 men walked down the side aisles on the main floor of the theater and took up their posts on either side of the orchestra pit. The picture was stopped and every light in the theater was turned on. Ed Backstrand, Harris, Ben, and I went down the aisle and up onto the stage. Backstrand made the announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, we're sorry to interrupt the picture, but this is important. We're police officers. We've traced the murderer of Judy Sullivan to this theater. He is in this theater now. And we're going to search the theater row by row, and we'd like to ask your cooperation. There's no need to be panicky or afraid. Those who wish to leave now may do so. Leave by the main entrance. 
Each one of you will be checked as you go out the door. And for the benefit of the man we're looking for, don't try to escape. Every exit is covered and the entire area is blockaded. Don't place any more lives in jeopardy. Come on, Ben. Backstage, Joe. We can make it from there. All right, let's go. Come on, hustle it, Ben. Yeah. The next building. You'll probably try to jump for it. All right, watch it. I think this door leads out to the roof. There he goes. All right, keeper, hold it. Don't shoot. Don't shoot. I give up. Throw your gun down. Over here. Don't shoot. Don't. Let's get him. All right, coppers. I got it figured. They won't top me for this. Didn't know what I was doing. Put the cuffs on him, Ben. Get away from me, you crumb. You shouldn't have hit him, keeper. Try the cuffs now. Yeah. Come on, let's get him in out of the rain. What's the hurry? Why spoil a good rain? The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Donald Alfred Kiefer was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 15th in a new series of authentic cases transcribed from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of acting chief of police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Deputy United States Marshal John B. Glenn of Boise, Idaho on the morning of July 31st, 1940, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. Theater Guild on the Air returns tomorrow night on NBC. The 15th ever episode of Dragnet from the late summer of 1949 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog is the audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. We're often asked about our big broadcast theme music, and we wish we knew more about the particular recording we play every week. Ed Walker did share that information with some of his fans back in the day, and if you're one of them, please let us know, too. What we do know is that it was the theme of the very first incarnation of a series called Big Town, originally starring Edward G. Robinson. Not many episodes with that theme survive, but we've got one of them for you now. With Howard Duff and Ona Munson, and directed by William N. Robeson, it aired on March 26, 1940, over CBS, as part of the series, Big Town. Extra, extra, beat all about the new 1940 rinse that washes clothes whiter and brighter. Read all about it.
1940 Top Speed Rinso with its marvelous new suds booster that licks hard water and gives much richer suds in soft water, too. Rinso brings you Edward G. Robinson in an exciting story from Big Town. A story of life and death on the highways of America. Ona Munson heads the supporting cast. Now, let's see what's going on in Big Town. In tonight's presentation, Mr. Robinson has heard is Steve Wilson, managing editor of the Illustrated Press. Steve is aided and abetted by Lorelei, the girl reporter, played by Ona Munson. We find them in the wire room of the Illustrated Press, talking to a committee from the Big Town Safe Driving League. Here's the list of casualties just coming in over the teleside, gentlemen. Weekend report of the dead and injured. And I'm not speaking of the war in Europe. I refer to the war on our streets and highways right here in Big Town. Here are the traffic deaths from Saturday noon to Sunday night. Eight people killed and 39 injured. That's dreadful, Mr. Wilson. In this county alone, our reckless drivers killed 1,046 people in 1939. We might as well be at war if this sort of thing keeps up. On this blackboard, we have the national figures of automobile deaths for the past 22 years. Look at that frightful increase. 1917, 6,724. In 1927, 21,160. In 37, 39,643. Why, it's appalling. In 38, we reduced the total by 7,000. And here's the National Safety Council's estimate for 39. Again, a reduction of 7,000. Yes, but that still leaves 32,600 motor vehicle deaths for 1939. But what can we do? Well, we've tried to do our share. We've been conducting a front-page fight against reckless driving for the past 18 months. We don't seem to get anywhere. We've got a big circulation. We reach thousands of people, but still it goes on. Why don't you take to the air, Steve? Tell your story over the radio. That's not a bad idea. We'd reach millions that way, wouldn't we? Yes. Yeah, that would take a lot of doing. We need radio writers, producers, actors. Yes, but most of all, you need a good announcer. A man who could dramatize the message. A dynamic personality. Well, what's the matter with our own Steve Wilson? Oh, oh I could do that. Oh, no. don't be silly, Steve. Of course you could. <laughs> So, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to continue these broadcasts until we've shocked, ashamed every driver into obeying the traffic laws and using the brains the good Lord gave him. Now, what are the common causes of tragic accidents on our streets and highways? First of all, speeding. Heaven knows that's common enough. John! John, let me Then there's the overconfident driver who, for no reason at all, wants to pass everyone on the road. I knew one charming young woman like that in a high-powered car, smartly dressed, positive that every male driver would give way to her sex and beauty. But one of them didn't. And she's no longer beautiful. She keeps her scarred face hidden from the world. And, of course, there's the couple who chatter as they ride along. The man tries to talk and watch the road at the same time. So I walked right into the boss's office and I says, Now, look here, you big stiff, you can't do that to me. You promised me a race two years look ago. Look out, Jim. You're on the wrong side of the road. And so it goes. The tragic young fools who make love as they drive. The blithering idiot who cuts in from the right. The impatient maniac who tries to pass another car on a curb. And then there's another type. Let me tell you about them. Her mother's driving, taking her daughter home. She'd found the girl drunk in the cocktail lounge. Thank heaven the doorman recognized you and phoned me. And to think that you'd be seen drinking in public, well, that's bad enough. 
but with a man like Pat Bell. Pat's all right. He's a good scout. He's a gangster, a criminal. He's a darn good-looking one. Oh, if your father ever finds out about this, I don't I know. I what... know. He'll throw me out. He threatened to do that last week. He never knows I'm on earth till I do something wrong. Hey, watch your driving, Mother. You nearly hit that post. Oh, I hardly know what I'm doing. You've upset me so. I don't understand you, Vi. A girl like you with every chance in the world. Here's the boulevard. Turn right. I know, I know. Pull over, Mother. You turned right in the path of that truck. Mother, look what you've done. What was it, Vi? What happened? You forced that truck to the left and it crashed head on into a school bus coming the other way. You better stop. Well, how can we? Don't you realize you've been drinking? I don't dare let the police see you in this condition. It was a busload of orphans from the shelter for homeless children. A load of kids returning from a happy day in the country. Oh, you're the driver of the truck, huh? Yes, sir. Here's my license. Fred on. And you're the kind of a guy they license to take loads like that on the road. Couldn't help it, I couldn't. That very convertible shot right in front of me. I swear it wasn't my fault. Tell that to the bus driver. He's dead. I know. I wish I was in his place. What I think of those poor kids they're loaded in the Sorry for them. What was the matter with you? Were you drunk or asleep? Oh, I don't drink. I knew what I was doing. It was that gray convertible that got my oh, way. I better get you down to the station. held the inquest on the following day. Lorelei and I were there with Hoagie and a cameraman. Mr. Arnold, it's strange that no one else reported that gray convertible. What make of car was it? A Mohawk. It came tearing out in the middle of the block and made a wide right turn, and I had to swing to keep from hitting it. I couldn't see the bus coming. But they saw you. Ten tons of death bearing down upon them. Now three witnesses have sworn that you lost control of your truck, and not one of them remembers the gray car. You've got to admit your story doesn't stand up. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe I'm crazy. Oh, what's the use? You've got me convicted already. That'll be all. The jury will retire to consider their verdict. Oh, uh, Hoagie, yeah. quick, uh, grab a shot of Arnold as he steps down from the stand. I'm going to frame it in the black border right under our master. Yeah, okay, boss. Hey, uh, Arnold, look over this way. No, don't do that. Don't. What a picture. Ten cameras going off at the same time. Poor devil. Look how he stares around him, holding onto the rail. Uh, Steve, he's falling. He's straight a day dead away. I'm his wife. Let me get to him. Oh, Fred. Fred, darling. Look at me, Fred. Speak to me. He'll be all right, Miss Arnold. He couldn't stand the strain, that's all. Oh, no. It isn't that. Ever since he hit that bus full of kids, he's been half crazy. You see, two years ago, our own baby was killed by a truck. I was convinced that Fred Arnold should be punished. That afternoon, Lorelei and I talked with him in his cell. Mr. Arnold, was it a man or a woman driving that gray car? I know there was a woman at the wheel, and I'm sure there was another woman with her. The car I'm positive about. It was a gray Mohawk convertible. I'd know that hood anywhere, a 1939. The accident happened on Langley Boulevard between 14th and 15th Street, huh? Yeah. You say the Mohawk came shooting out from the middle of the block. Sure, that's right. Well, then it must have come out of a driveway. And there's only one driveway in that block, the one that leads to Paradise Inn. Say, I never thought of that, miss. She would be making a right turn coming out of there, wouldn't she? Maybe you've hit it. What do you think, Steve? Well, I don't know. I still think I'm guilty, don't you? Yes, I do, Arnold. But I've been wrong before. I may be wrong again. (laughs) 
After we left the jail, I dropped Lorelei at the entrance to Paradise Inn. Leave it to a clever woman to get the truth out of a man. Oh, come on now, open up, Mr. Doorman. You know you saw that car. Maybe I did, lady. Maybe there was 50 gray Mohawk convertibles in here on Wednesday. Oh, now look here. You don't look to me like the sort who let an innocent man go to prison for something he didn't do. Arnold has a wife and a family. I'll bet you have, too. Now, can't you sort of refresh your memory? Looks bad for the guy, huh? Maybe ten years in the pen. Well, all right. There was a gray Mohawk in here that day, but I don't know who was driving it. Well, just tell me one thing. Did it leave here about the time of the accident? Yeah, and that's all I got to say. I'm sorry for the guy, but I'm not losing my job. Now, look here, Steve. You must admit that there was a Mohawk convertible there at that time. Arnold must be telling the truth. Yes, I must admit that. But we've done everything we could to convict him. Now, how can we help him now? We've got to find the woman who was driving that car and make her substantiate his story. Oh, that's next to impossible. We found there were over 70 convertibles of that same make, and not one of them owned by a possible suspect. On the day after the trial, we were at the Big Town Hospital, where seven of the little victims were being treated. Goodbye, dear. Thanks for the dog. Oh, that's all right, darling. Goodbye, Mr. Wilson. Goodbye, goodbye. So long, kids. Goodbye. Oh, where's the other little girl, nurse? Jane King. You know, the one who was hurt so badly. We moved her into a room just across the hall. Uh, May we see her? Just for a moment, yes. Follow me. This is her room. Oh, Oh, I beg your pardon. I didn't know you were coming out, Mrs. Martin. Oh, that's all right, nurse. Jane fell asleep while I was reading to her. Oh, Mr. Wilson. Why, hello, Mrs. Martin. Uh, this is uh, Miss Kilburn. How, How do you do, do Miss Kilburn? I didn't know that you knew Jane. Well, I, uh, I I didn't know her before the accident. I was just just looking in on the children, that's all. Excuse me, please. I've got to hurry. Yeah. It was a pleasure, Miss Kilburn. Thank you. Goodbye, Mr. Wilson. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mrs. Martin. You know who she is, Lorelai? No. She's the wife of Judge Dudley Martin. Oh, really? Yes. She's been here every day since the accident. Oh, has she? Yes, she spends hours with a little Jane, reading to her, singing her to sleep. Several times when I walked in on them, I found Mrs. Martin in tears. That's strange. I'd never judge her to be that type. She seems so worldly to me. Well, you know, we can tell Lorelai. Well, if Jane's asleep, we won't go in now. Uh, Just give her these things, Nancy. We've got to see Fred Arnold's wife. Fred Arnold? The man who caused the accident? Yes. The poor devil's going to be sentenced tomorrow. terribly sorry for the things that were said in my paper, Mrs. Arnold. You had to print the news. Anyway, everybody's been awful kind to me. Mrs. Martin was here again last night. Mrs. Martin? Judge Martin's wife? Yes. Would you believe it, Mr. Wilson? A woman I never met before. And she's put money in the bank for me. A trust fund to take care of us till... till Fred gets out of prison. Steve. Well, why should she do that? Well, I don't know it must be the goodness of her heart. Say, Steve, do you suppose that Mrs. Oh, Martin... Oh, no, 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 that's impossible. Mrs. No. Arnold, uh, what kind of a... Well, no, I've never seen her. Oh, no, Lorelai, you're all wrong. Nevertheless, we'd better make sure. Where do the Martins live? In the big town apartments. Well, there's a garage in that building, isn't yes, there? Yes, but I don't oh, Mrs. see... Mrs. Arnold, uh, may I use this phone? Of course. Lorelai, you're crazy. This oh, is... Maybe I am, but I've got a hunch. Oh, well, I don't think... Oh, don't tell me about women, Steve. I know them. There's a guilty conscience behind all this. Oh, uh, hello, uh, big town apartments... Well, let me speak to the superintendent of the garage, please. Thank you. Now, here's the phone, what? Steve. It's up to you. Well, good Lord, now, woman. Uh, Dudley Martin's my friend. I... So you'd rather see Arnold go to prison, would you? No, no, of course not. All right, all right. Come on, I'll play your hunch. Give me that phone. Hello, uh, Big Town Garage? Why, this is, uh, 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 this is police headquarters. 
Uh, tell me, uh, do you service Mrs. Dudley Martin's car? You do? Well, describe it, please. Yes. I see. Uh, uh, thank you. Well, I was right, wasn't I? It's a gray Mohawk convertible. No, Lorelei. Mrs. Martin drives a Dodge Coupe. And now back to Big Tom. We return you to Big Town and to Steve Wilson. Steve is still addressing his radio audience, dramatizing a news story on the air. In spite of what I'd learned over the phone, Lorelei was not thoroughly convinced. Uh, once that persistent creature gets an idea in a lovely blonde head, uh, she worries it like a dog with a bone. Before I knew it, I found myself at the Big Town Apartments down in the basement garage listening to Lorelei turn on the chop. Well, you see, Mr. Superintendent, this gentleman and I really came down here to settle an argument. I swore that I saw a friend of mine pull out of here a minute ago in a Dodge Coupe, Mrs. Dudley Martin. Oh, no, that couldn't have been Mrs. Martin. No? Her Dodge is standing right over there. That gunmetal job with the red leather seats. Oh. Uh, smart, isn't it? Uh-huh. Looks like a brand new car to me. Yeah, it is. She's just breaking it in. Only had it about a week. Oh, what happened to her old car? Oh, the Mohawk convertible? Yes. yes oh, she uh... traded it in, I guess. Nothing wrong with it, either. Must have got tired of driving it. I see. Well, thank you so much. That's all right, lady. Come on, Steve. Well, it all fits in, doesn't it? She must have gotten rid of that gray convertible right after the accident. Oh, tell me, who's crazy now? I guess I am, Lorelei. Good Lord, I never dreamed that a woman like Marie Martin could do such a thing. I still can't believe it. She must have had a darn good reason for keeping it undercover. Say, how well do you know her, Steve? Well, not as well as I know her husband. Is he the sort of man who'd stand for a thing like that? I should think so. Then you'd better go to him first. Now, where, now look, would that be there? Now, she really is guilty. Shouldn't we give her a chance to tell him herself? How much of a chance did she give those kids? And what about Fred Arnold? What a swell chance she's giving him. I know, but we're not sure yet. We'd better give her the benefit of the doubt. Martin, last time I saw you, you were nothing but a long-legged kid. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't so long ago. Mother will be down in a minute. Mr. Wilson, I've been following the Arnold case in your paper. Oh, have you? You were really vindictive at first and demanded his punishment. But suddenly you did a complete about-face. Why was that? Well, I discovered that he was innocent. You mean that somebody else caused the accident? That's right. He very plainly said so in one article. I must admit that. But you didn't name anyone. No, I didn't. I, I couldn't. But isn't it true that newspaper people sometimes play detective in order to expose someone or to get a big story? Yes, it's true sometimes. Why? Uh, can you help us in this case? Well, I... Now, if you could buy, you'd be helping the guilty woman as well. Then you know what the woman... Yes. But it isn't the one you think. The one who was driving, I mean. She wasn't to blame at all. Well, you can't let them do anything Mother. to her. Oh, Mother, if you'd only Please. let me... I want to speak to Mr. Wilson and Miss Kilburn alone. But I don't see what I'm good... sorry, dear, but I know what I'm doing. Very well. Excuse me. Vise, uh, a very impulsive girl. Always fighting other people's battles. But you shouldn't take advantage of that, Mr. Wilson. How do you mean? Oh, by questioning her on a subject that she can't possibly know anything about. Oh, what makes you think I was questioning her? Well, I, uh, I could tell that by her attitude. How could you possibly know what we were discussing unless... Unless uh... I listen. Well, perhaps I did for a moment. You see, one never knows what Vi will say or do. She's at that that formative age when a girl's emotions are, well, unpredictable, to say the least. Mrs. Martin, uh, Fred Arnold comes up for sentence tomorrow. Yes, I, 
I know. Won't be a light sentence. He's 35 now. He'll be well past 40 when he gets out. That's young enough as ages go, but Arnold won't be young. After those years in prison, he'll be a broken old man. Now, we know he's innocent. We can't let that happen to him. His wife told us what you're doing for her. Oh, she shouldn't have. I didn't want her to speak of it. But why? Well, it's certainly a beautiful gesture, or could it be more than that, Mrs. Martin? I don't know what you mean. I'd do anything to help a woman in such terrible trouble. She's not to blame for what happened. Yes, neither is her husband. Mrs. Martin, that accident was caused by a woman driving a gray convertible mohawk. There was another woman in the car with her. She came shooting out of the driveway from the Paradise Inn. She didn't look to left or right. She made a sweeping turn of the boulevard traffic right into the path of an oncoming truck. Now, there's no stop sign at the end of the driveway because it's not a public thoroughfare. But there should have been a stop sign in that woman's brain, an instinctive consideration for the safety of others. If there had been, a man and a boy would still be alive. And a crippled child would still be able to walk. Now, what are, what are we going to do about it, Mrs. Martin? Well, I... Why do you come to me with that question? Because I know how terribly interested you are. Yes. Yes, I am. But there's nothing I can do. Absolutely nothing. I'm sorry. So am I. Terribly sorry. She had a chance, but she thought she was safe, that nothing could be proved against her, so she turned it down. Soon after that, Lorelai and I were seated in the office of her husband, Judge Dudley Martin. Sorry, I had to keep you folks waiting. Oh, that's perfectly all right, Judge. What can I do for you, Wilson? Well, Judge, Miss Kilburn and I have come to you for a little legal advice. Well, what about your own attorneys? Well, this is something of an exceptional nature, a very peculiar case. A certain lady, whom I know rather well, is in a serious jam. Oh. She's at least morally responsible for an automobile accident that caused the death of a man and a boy and permanently crippled a little girl. How do you mean, morally? Well, she made a quick right turn out of a driveway into the heavy traffic of a boulevard. She got across the path of a truck, and the driver swerved to avoid her, thus causing him to crash into an oncoming bus. Would you say that she was legally responsible, Judge? Well, I could hardly give you such a decision without knowing the full details. Was there a stop sign at the driveway? No, Judge. Hmm. Well, then offhand, I'd say she might be held for criminal negligence. But only the trial judge could decide that. In my opinion, your friend should make a frank statement and throw herself on the mercy of the court. Yes, but she refuses to do that. She won't admit she was anywhere near the scene of the accident. You see, we're the only ones who know about it, and we can't prove it. The worst part of it is the driver of the truck has been convicted of manslaughter and will probably be innocently sent away for a long term. Wait a minute. Is this the Arnold case you're talking about? The driver who crashed his truck into that busload of kids? Yes, That's right. Why, I've been following that case with a great deal of interest. I was never so shocked in my life when I read about the accident. It's a lucky thing for Arnold that he wasn't brought before me for trial. I doubt if I could have rendered an impartial judgment. And do you mean to tell me that you've discovered he wasn't responsible? Exactly. But good Lord, man, you can't let him go to prison. Doesn't that woman realize what she's done? I'm sure she does. She's trying to make up for it in other ways. I know she's tortured by the memory of it. But how could she let Arnold go through the agony of that trial? How can she let him take the punishment that she herself deserves? Is she a married woman? Yes. Does her husband know about this? No. Then it's your duty to go to him and tell him just what you've told me. Well, that's just what I've done, Judge. You see, I've been talking about your wife. Everything they've told you about me is true, Dudley. I was the woman who drove that car. It was my gray convertible. 
That's why I got rid of it so soon after the accident. That was a very foolish move to make, Mary. Oh, I'm desperately afraid that someone would find out what had really happened. I've gone through purgatory ever since that day, thinking of those poor babies lying there under the wreckage of that bus. I, I didn't wait to see what I'd done to them, but I read about it in the papers that night. I could hear them screaming, crying. If you had only come to me in the first place. Oh, I know I should have, but I was a coward in that, too. Oh, I know you'll never forgive me. I, I couldn't blame you if you'd hate me for it. I'm ready to take whatever punishment is coming to me. There was another woman in that car, Mrs. Martin. Oh, no. Oh, no, there wasn't. I was alone. I've confessed that I was to blame. I'll confess in an open court. You'll get a sensational story for your paper. What more do you want? You want the whole truth. If there was another woman with you, you'll have to tell who she was. No, I won't. I won't. I don't care what they do to me. I'll keep on denying it. It won't do you any good, Mother. Violet. Because I won't let you get away with it. Oh, you can't come in here. We're discussing something very important. Something very private. I know what you're discussing, and I'm a part of it. Oh, Dudley, please make her go. I don't want to talk about it now. Listen, Mother, there's no use putting on an act to save me, because I'll only spoil it for you. I heard Mr. Wilson say he wanted the whole truth. Well, he's going to get it. What do you mean by What do you know about this? I know all about it, Father. I'm the motive. Can't you see? I was the other woman in that car. Oh, don't believe her. She's lying, trying to help me. Yes, and I'm trying to help myself, too. Do you think I've had an ounce of self-respect since that thing happened? Go ahead, Miss Martin. Get it off your chest. I was out with Pat Bell that day, Father. With Pat Bell? After what I told you? Yes. I spent the afternoon in the cocktail lounge of Paradise Inn. Get my father's attention was by kicking over the apple cart. In fact, I felt so sorry for myself that I drank too much. Oh, she's only making it up. It isn't true. The doorman knew who I was, and he phoned Mother. She was hurrying me home, and the accident happened. The poor soul was so upset, she hardly knew what she was doing. She wouldn't stop for fear someone would find out that her daughter had been drinking. Oh, she did it all for me. And she's been breaking her heart over it ever since. Oh, my. Oh, my dear. My dear. I'll take care of this, Wilson. We'll be in court in the morning. my intention to sentence you to the penitentiary for a term of from five to ten years. But in view of the evidence just presented to this court, I suspend that sentence. Thank you, Judge. Thanks. You are exonerated of moral responsibility. But under the circumstances, it will be necessary for me to release you on probation. Mrs. Martin? Yes? Mrs. Martin, I'm sorry, but it is my duty to order your arrest on a charge of manslaughter. Oh. May I speak, Your Honor? Of course, Judge Martin. My wife is ready to stand trial. Morally, I shall be on trial with her. For it was neglect of my daughter that brought it all about. I shall resign from the bench, retire to private life, devote all my attention to my family. Mrs. Martin was tried and received a suspended sentence. Some have said she got off too easily. But one never forgets the cries of wounded children. That's my story, ladies and gentlemen. And I hope it has achieved its purpose to bring home to all of us the fact that one moment's thoughtlessness behind the wheel of a car may result in a lifetime of tragedy. We may escape it once or twice, but retribution is always waiting.
From the first week of spring in 1940, Big Town, with that opening theme that we've expropriated here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Not many radio sketches have their own entries in Wikipedia, but there's a BBC radio skit that does, and it's even famous on this side of the Atlantic. It's a parody of those travelogues they used to play between features in movie theaters, especially James A. Fitzpatrick's series Travel Talks. The sketch was written for a 1949 series called Third Division, and it starred Peter Sellers, Harry Seacombe, Benny Hill, Michael Benteen, and some other all-stars. In 1958, Mr. Sellers performed it again, doing all the voices for a recording produced by George Martin, who went on to make all those Beatles records. The writers of the sketch were all-stars, too, Dennis Norden and Frank Muir, whom you may remember from the BBC show My Word that was played on public radio here in Washington for many years. Well, Dennis Norden, who passed away in 2018, was born 100 years ago tonight. He had a great career, and we'll post the link to a BBC interview with him on our Facebook page. But best of all, we'll hear the 1958 recording of that classic comedy piece now. We've heard it before here on the big broadcast, but it's a masterpiece, and it bears repeating. It features a thoroughly unexotic locale, the London suburb of Balham, mispronounced, of course, by Peter Sellers's American-accented narrator. First broadcast on radio February 2nd, 1949, and recreated for Parlophone Records in 1958, it's the masterful Peter Sellers performing Balham. Gateway to the South. Balham, Gateway to the South. We enter Balham through the verdant grasslands of Battersea Park, and at once we are aware that here is a land of happy, contented people who go about their daily tasks in truly democratic spirit. This is Busy High Street, focal point of the town's activities. Note the quaint old stores whose frontage is covered with hand-painted inscriptions, every one a rare example of native Balham art. Let us read some of them as our camera travels past. Cooking apples, Joyce eaters. A song to remember at the Tantamount Cinema. A suit to remember at Montague Moss. Emotions conducted with decorum and taste. Friday night, bring your own paper. Rally Thursday, Barclay Square. Viscountess Lewisham and Mrs. Gerald Legg. Up the ruling classes. This shows the manifold activities of Balham's thriving community. But in quiet corners, we still find examples of the exquisite workmanship that Balham craftsmen have made world famous. Toothbrush holesmanship. On my forge, I carve the little holes in the top of toothbrushes. It is exciting work, and my forefathers have been engaged upon it since 1957. <clears throat> the little holes in the top are put in manually, or in other words, once a year. 
I recently had the honor of demonstrating my craft before the only of I. He stopped by one day for a couple of words. I did not understand either of them. So much for Balham's Industries. Now let us see a little more of the town. Here is the great park covering nearly half an acre. This is where the children traditionally meet by the limpid waters of the old drinking fountain. A drinking fountain that has for countless years across the vast aeons of time given untold pleasure to man, woman, and child. Beside this fountain, donated by able counselor Quills as long ago as 1928, the little ones sit around a trim nursemaid and listen spellbound and enchanted as she reads them a story. With one bound, he was by her side. Nora felt his hot breath on her cheek as he ripped the thin silk from... We are now entering old Balham. Time has passed by this remote corner. So shall we. But Balham is not neglecting the cultural side. This is Eugene Quills, whose weekly recitals are attended by a vast concord of people. He has never had a lesson in his life. Such is the enthusiasm of Balham's music lovers that they are subscribing to a fund to send Eugene to Italy or Vienna or anywhere. Night falls on Balham. From Quill's Folly, Balham's famous beauty spot, which stands nearly ten feet above sea level, the town is spread below us in a fairyland of glittering lights, changing all the time. Green, amber, red, red and amber, and back to green. The nightlife is awakening. The El Morocco Tea Room. What you want? Pilchards. They're off, dear. Oh, baked beans? Off. Oh, meat, meatloaf salad? That's off, too. Oh, pot of tea? No tea, dear. Well, just milk, then. Milk's off. A roll and butter, then? No butter, dear. Oh, just a roll. Only bread, love. I might have just as well have stayed at home. Well, I don't know. It does you good to have a fling occasionally. <laughs> And so the long night draws on. The last stragglers make their way home, and the lights go out one by one as dawn approaches and the bell of St. Quill's Parish Church tolls ten o'clock. Balham sleeps. And so we say farewell to this historic borough with many pleasant memories. And the words of C. Quill Smith, Balham's own bard, burning in our ears. Broad-bosomed, bold, becalmed, benign, lies Belham, four square, on the northern line. Matched by no marvel save in eastern scene, a rose-red city, half as gold as green. By country churchyard, ferny fen and mere, what quills mute, inglorious, lies buried here? Oh, stands the church clock at ten to three, and is there honey still for tea?
Honey's off there. Peter Sellers doing all the voices in Balham, Gateway to the South, a sketch originally written for BBC Radio in 1949, recorded by Mr. Sellers in 1958, and written by Frank Muir and his partner Dennis Norden, who would have turned 100 today. The other centennial we're celebrating tonight is that of one of the stars of the great MGM movie musicals. Catherine Grayson, who would have celebrated her hundredth birthday this coming Wednesday, February ninth, Ms. Grayson, who passed away in two thousand ten, brought something quite different to those classic movies—a coloratura soprano that was featured in such films as *Showboat*, *Kiss Me, Kate*, and *Anchors Away*, a show we'll hear next hour in its radio adaptation. Her greatest years started as the Second World War was ending, but American servicemen and women were still stationed all around the world, and Armed Forces Radio was still entertaining them with programs like Jubilee, Command Performance, and Mail Call, featuring some of Hollywood and Broadway's biggest stars. Catherine Grayson was one of those stars, and we're going to hear her in an unlikely pairing. With Groucho Marx, it's vintage Groucho, and the guitarist Les Paul and the sweet-voiced singing star Kenny Baker are on hand as well, and there are references to Nat King Cole's hit novelty song "The Frim Fram Sauce," and Major Bo's Amateur Hour, kind of the America's Got Talent of its day, from March twenty-seventh, nineteen forty-six. It's Mail Call with Catherine Grayson. Here's mail call. One big package of music and fun delivered to you by the stars from whom you ought to hear and answer the request you send to Armed Forces Radio Service, Los Angeles, USA. Boson Baker, report to the bridge. Boson Kenny Baker, reporting, sir. Boson Baker, you're to pipe tonight's skipper aboard. Are your pipes in order? Aye, aye, sir. Good. Then pipe away, Baker. With a song in my heart, I behold your adorable face. Just a song at the start, but it soon is a hymn to your grace. When the music swells, I'm touching your hand. It tells that you're standing near me. The sound of your voice, heaven opens its portals to me. Can I help but rejoice 
that a song such as ours came to be, but I always knew I would live life through with a song in my heart for Kenny Baker, and now while the men are hoisting anchor, we'll let our skipper for this cruise take over the bridge. And here he is, the man who has been spellbound all his life, that bon vivant who knows all the ropes and usually smokes them, Groucho Mars. Welcome to the good ship mail call, Groucho. We're glad to have you aboard. And I'm very glad to be aboard. Now, let's get down to cases. And incidentally, how many cases do we have aboard? <laughs> oh, for the life of a sailor. This is all so much like home to me. I was born on the high sea, you know. You were born on the high sea? Yes, my mother was an opera singer. My father was an old ship captain. Whaler? Oh, he used to kick around once in a while. <laughs> But that was because she nagged him all the time, except on Fridays. That was the day he went into town for a change and rest. The bars got his change and the pool halls got the rest. Captain Marks! Captain Marks! Now, don't ask me if I know where the mizzen mast is, because I didn't even know it was mizzen. I just wanted to say, Captain, that when I was on my last liberty, I invited a charming young lady aboard. See here, Baker, if anyone's going to take any liberties with a charming young lady, you know who it'll be. Who? Curve your insolent tongue, man. Don't forget, I'm top dog here. Hello, everybody. Pop, pop! Yes, sir, and here she is, Skipper Catherine Grayson. Well, spank my spinnaker and call me Wendy. <laughs> if you ain't a rare treasure, Catherine, molass, and what persuaded you to come aboard the good ship mail call? Why, I heard such flattering things about the dashing Captain Marks, I just had to come aboard to see, for, see him for myself. Why, Catherine, I didn't know you cared. But Captain Marks, I... Catherine, what's come over you so suddenly? You're so cold, so distant. But, Groucho, I never Wait, said... Wait, Catherine, after all, I'm not a child. I'm a man with all the word implies. But, Groucho... <laughs> hope I can get my neck back. <laughs> Please, darling, no scenes, no melodramatics, no petty jealousies. But, Groucho... No, don't turn around. It'll only make things more difficult. <laughs> But that's all water over the dam now. And speaking of water, reminds me of the sea. Ha, ah, how I love the sea. Night after night, I would walk the bridge of my ship and gaze up at the stars with ecstasy. And when ecstasy was seasick, I'd walk alone. <laughs> for six years, I sailed the seven seas. And then for seven years, I sailed the six seas. <laughs> Everyone knew the name of Marks. Captain Horatio Marks Blower. And there's three ships on the line. The Nina, the Pinter, and the Santa Fe. <laughs> How long, <laughs> How long have you been in the Navy? How long have you been in the Navy? A spy in back of me here. Why? What was that, Catherine? How long have you been in the Navy, Catherine? Including the last remark? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, man and boy, I've been at the sea 40 years now. 40 years? They used to say 40 years, but they don't know. 40 years, they said. 40 years? Yes. Why, you must have enlisted in Rockford. No, as a matter of fact, it was San Diego. <laughs> what was that? Two bells, sir. Good. Ask them aboard. <laughs> it's time to stop sticking their tongues out. 
And while you're at it, get that telephone number. Tell me, That's known as nullifying two jokes. <laughs> Tell me, Captain Mark Floor, didn't you ever get homesick in all your years on the water? Yes, Catherine, I did. There is still a little of the country boy left in me, and sometimes as I lay there on my bed, which was six feet wide... That's a lot of bunk. <laughs> I would dream about our little old red barn. It's loft filled with fragrant new-mown hay. Ah, how often have I dreamed of that hay and pitched and tossed all night. <laughs> shall we dance? Groucho, we have no music. What a thoughtless cat I am. For that, I should swing from the highest yard arm. Uh, pardon me, Captain, but why don't you swing down here to the music of the Les Paul Trio? Well, say... A little late getting on the boat. Stop, boys. Uh, Catherine, do you, do you know you dance divinely? Oh, thank you for the compliment, Groucho. I don't know where that line comes in here at all. <laughs> but listen, Groucho, I'd trade all my dancing for the adventures you must have had as a sailor. You ain't just whistling chickory chick. <laughs> I've had some pretty unbelievable adventures. That's yeah. you, Catherine. <laughs> you did. Right here, huh? Was that your most exciting adventure, Groucho? Yes. I have quite a soothing effect on her. <laughs> yes, Catherine, I shall never forget when I was shipwrecked off the island of Frimfram with Chafalfa on the side. It was a balmy tropical day, and I was at the wheel when suddenly I found myself gripped in the teeth of a gale. The waves mounted higher and higher, and the wind screamed through the rigging. <laughs> suddenly the island loomed up big. They carry their own wind here. (laughs) Suddenly the island loomed up big before me. You're not going to cut that line out on me. I say, Captain, there's an island set ahead. 
Lieutenant, how many times have I told you not to bother me with trifles? Well, Captain, it's dead ahead. That's the trouble. There are too many deadheads around here. <laughs> Skipper, Skipper, we've just been... ...tramp steamer. Nobody waits for their cues around. <laughs> i never been on a ship like this. Huh? This is really a tramp steamer, huh? You say you've been signaled by a tramp steamer? Well, what do they want? A nickel for a cup of coffee. Tell them I don't want any coffee, but give them the nickel anyhow. They may run into a schooner. <laughs> Egad, what was that? Captain, we just sprung a leak in the hull. The hull? The hull, you say? <laughs> Hadn't you better give the order to abandon ship, sir? Abandon ship, Mr. Christian? We shall never abandon ship. What kind of a crew do I have? Are you men or mice? And take the cheese out of your mouth before you answer that. <laughs> yes, it was now apparent that we were in a tight spot. The storm was mounting and things were looking dark. Come to think of it, it was dark. Midnight and no moonshine. And brother, when it's... Please don't beat me to the joke, but... I'd like to get a laugh occasionally here myself. And, brother, when it's midnight, there's no moonshine, things are bound to be pretty dark. That's the joke. <laughs> Captain! Captain! The lookout in the crow's nest is trying to signal you. Well, tell him to stop treading water and swim on down here. <laughs> And that's all I remember until I awoke and found myself lying on the beach of a desolate island. But I wasn't alone. A tall, sinewy figure stood over me, his powerful muscles bronzed by the tropic sun. Through my groggy eyes, I've been looking at too much grog lately, I looked up and said, Who are you? And in a voice full of resonance and timber, he said, Hello. That's a nice part, huh? He got here at 10 o'clock this morning for that, huh? Who are you? Why, I'm Kenny Baker, Mr. Marks. Don't you remember? Listen. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places that this heart of mine embraces all day through. In that small cafe, the park across the way, the children's carousel, the chestnut trees, the wishing well. I'll be seeing you in every lovely summer's day, in everything that's light and gay. I'll always think of you that way. I'll find you in the morning sun, and when the night is I'll be looking at the moon 
Until one day they caught me stealing guppies out of their fish traps. Of course, it really wasn't my fault. I told them to keep their traps shut. They told me they wanted me for dinner, but they changed their minds. What happened? Well, I wasn't all I was cooked up to be. They chased me out of the village with their spears, and almost got me in the end, but I was saved by their queen. Lydia was her name. She'd been marooned there since the last Major Bose unit went through. Ah, what a lovely creature she was, with a cluster of diamonds in each nostril. Oh, it was love at first fright. She was beautiful. Her lips. Oh, I can never forget those lips. So round, so firm, so fully packed. As she turned to me and whispered sweetly into my ear. That's a new character. I haven't seen him before. <laughs> they spring up out of the woodwork around here. And then I would turn to her and say, Pancake. You see, I called her Pancake because she looks so waffle. Pancake. Pancake, let me sing you a song. It's just a little batter I whipped up for you. Oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that men adore so. And a torso, even more so. Lydia, oh, Lydia, that encyclopedia. Oh, Lydia, the queen of tattoos. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo. Beside it, the wreck of the Hesperus, too. And proudly above waves the red, white, and blue. You can learn a lot from Lydia. 
When her robe is unfurled, she will show you the world. If you'll step up and tell her where, for a dime you can see Kankakee or Patty or Washington crossing the Delaware. Say, have you met Lydia, Lydia the tattooed lady? When her muscles start relaxing, up the hill comes Andrew Jackson. Lydia, oh Lydia, that encyclopedia, oh Lydia, the champ of them all. For to bit she will do a massacre and jazz with a view of Niagara that nobody has. And on a clear day, you can see Alcatraz. You can find a lot of Lydia. Come along and see Buffalo Bill with his lasso. Just a little classic by Mendel Picasso. This Captain Spaulding exploring the Amazon. Is good diver, but with her pajamas on. Oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, oh, have you seen Lydia, Lydia, the tattooed lady? When she stands, the world grows littler, when she sits, she sits on Hitler. Lydia, oh, Lydia, that encyclopedia, oh, Lydia, the champ of them all. She once swept a sailor clear off her hips. The ships on her hips made his heart skip a beat. And now the old boy's in command of the fleet. For he went and married Lydia. I said Lydia. I said Lydia. on the island. Then one day I was re- relaxing on the beach under a banyan tree, peacefully combing the sand out of my mustache. My boy Friday kept running up to me. Captain Mark! Captain Mark! I've just sighted a strange-looking object 500 yards off the shore. Quick, man, what is it? Well, it's hard to say exactly. It looks like a submarine, only it's a yellow shade. Well, what is it, a submarine or a yellow shade? I don't know, sir. You sure it wasn't a Venetian blind? <laughs> I don't know, sir. Or a gaily striped awning? I don't know, sir. Friday, you've been drinking again. Go back to your crow's nest and see if you can hatch up a couple of those gags. I'll try, but please, Captain, don't send me up there again. I've got the jitters. Ground me for a couple of days. <laughs> Ground you? What are you, a hamburger? <laughs> you think I don't know it's murder to send a mere boy up in a crate like that? With the skies full of hell divers? You think it's any easier for me? Waiting, waiting. Hoping against hope that the next point drop will catch me. <laughs> But we must have strength, Baker. Signal the submarine to come in. (laughs) And so with my heart crying, knowing that I was leaving perhaps forever, that beautiful, peaceful heaven and the sea, we bade a reluctant farewell in my Pacific paradise. And as we slipped out of the quiet little lagoon, 
the hot tropical sun sank in the cool Pacific. Oh, Groucho, that was a wonderful story. <laughs> Whatever happened to your your friend, the your Lydia, the, the tattooed lady? Oh, I don't know. The last I heard, someone else had designs on her. <laughs> How I talk, how you talk, and come to think of it, how you sing. No, how my heart sings. All of a sudden, my heart sings. When I remember little things, the way you dance and hold me tight. Where you kiss and say goodnight The crazy things we say and do And well, men, the good ship mail call has weathered quite a storm tonight, but we sincerely hope you've enjoyed the cruise. About this time in the program, your skipper usually appears to tell you how we've enjoyed pounding over the ether waves with you. Well, I'm no exception. Believe me, it's a pleasure to do these programs for you and to answer the requests you send in. You men overseas who are securing the peace after our costly victory are doing a job universally recognized as a hard job, but not a thankless one. These broadcasts are just one of the many ways that we here at home are saying thank you. This is Groucho Marx. Good night, everyone. Well, there you have it, then. Another mail call letter has been secured. Tonight's signatures include Groucho Marx, Catherine Grayson, Kenny Baker, the Les Paul Trio... The Armed Forces Radio Service Orchestra, directed by Walter Schumann, 
And yours sincerely, Ben Alexander. This program was arranged with the cooperation of the Hollywood Coordinating Committee. Another mail call will be coming your way the next time you hear... Forces Radio's mail call from the early spring of 1946. It featured Catherine Grayson, among others, and she would have turned 100 years old this coming Wednesday. We'll hear her co-starring with Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly in just a few moments here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arald Bailey. Our audio engineer is Kenny Pirog, And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. I mentioned earlier that Catherine Grayson's stardom really took off just as World War II was ending. Well, in fact, one of her biggest MGM musical successes was released the very month of the Japanese surrender, August of 1945. It was one of three buddy movies the studio produced with Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra, and it was a perfect match for the historical moment. Anchors Away cast the two young stars as sailors on leave in California, with Ms. Grayson as the object of their shared affection. One important character from the movie who doesn't appear in the radio version is the great Spanish piano virtuoso José Iturbi. There's also a reference to the great conductor, Leopold Stokowski. The songs are by the tremendous team of Julie Stein and Sammy Kahn. But, unhappily, we can't show you the most famous sequence in this Oscar-winning smash-hit movie, The Dance, performed by Gene Kelly and Jerry the Mouse from the Tom and Jerry cartoons. But a link to it is on our Facebook page. And if you listen to the very end of this December 29th, 1947 CBS broadcast, you just might hear some tap dancing from the fabulous Gene Kelly. In honor of what would have been her 100th birthday this week, here is Catherine Grayson with Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly in the Lux Radio Theater production of Isabel Leonard's screenplay for Anchors Away. Lux presents Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, bring you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Frank Sinatra, Catherine Grayson, and Gene Kelly in Anchors Away. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keeley. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. And to that, may I add very special holiday greetings. 
This time of year calls for music, gaiety, and laughter. And so we've gone out of our way to bring you all three in a play that so many of you have requested. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's great screen hit, Anchors Away. And to do it full justice, we present its three original stars, Frank Sinatra, Catherine Grayson, and Gene Kelly, in a delightful comedy romance highlighted by unforgettable songs. Songs I'm sure you'll all be humming as you leave the theater. Humming tomorrow, maybe, as you wash those dishes in rich, mild luck suds. It's time for Anchors Away, and here's our first act, starring Frank Sinatra as Clarence Doolittle, Catherine Grayson as Susan, and Gene Kelly as Joe Brady. It's toward the end of the war, and one of our fighting ships has just dropped anchor in the harbor of San Pedro, California. Among the sailors granted a four-day leave after eight months at sea are Joe Brady and Clarence Doolittle. Joe, with his first step on shore, instinctively dashed for the nearest telephone. Clarence, as always, tagging at his heels. Gosh, Joe, looks like every sailor who got leave wants a telephone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, pipe down, will you? Hello. Hello, Miss Laverne? Miss Lola Laverne? Hey, shut up, you guys, will you? Yeah, can't you see he's talking to his girl? Is this the face that launched a thousand ships? Yeah. Yeah, it's Joe, all right. Hello, you beautiful creature. How do you like that? Well, it'll be a couple hours before I hit Hollywood, honey. Oh, I know what you mean, baby. Oh, can you wait? Boy, what technique? Well, let's, let's decide that later, baby. After eight months at sea, all I want to do is look at you for a long time. Sure, I'll hurry. Goodbye, honey. Ah, oh, thanks, fellas. Thanks. Really nothing at all. Nothing at all. Hurry up. The buses are leaving for Hollywood. Hey, here we go, Clarence. Oh, you beautiful, gorgeous dames, you. Here we come. Now, look, Clarence. Ever since we got to Hollywood, you've been following me. You got a date, haven't you? Uh-uh. I thought you... Uh-uh. It's always been like this, Joe. Every time we hit port, all I do is go to the library. So you like books. What's the beef? Well, I thought it'd be fun to try something different. You know, like going out with girls. But uh, I don't know how to begin. Nah, don't give me that, Clarence. After all, you're from Brooklyn. Uh, Joe, even in Brooklyn, things can go wrong. What do you mean? Well, right from boys' high school, I went to the cathedral, see, and I was, I was the assistant choir master. Oh. Yeah, right from there, of course, I went into the Navy. And I, I wouldn't tell that to anyone but you, Joe. Well, do you want a couple of phone numbers? Thanks, but I'd be too scared to use them. But when you mentioned Lola, I thought you'd... Lola? Me... Hey, are you kidding? Well, if I could go with you, I could learn something. After all, Joe, everybody knows you're the best wolf in the Navy. And besides, you gotta help me. What do you mean, I gotta help you? Well, didn't you save my life when I fell overboard? I didn't ask you to save my life, so now you're responsible for me. So now I'm re... How do you like this guy? Well, look, Joe, what's the sense in having your life saved if you can't have any fun with it? Well, look, if I find a dame for you and get you started, will you call it quits? Gee, that'd be swell, Joe. I'm certainly... Hey, Joe. Hey, look, that, that police car, Joe. Well, what about it? Joe, that cop... Hey, you say this. 
Come here, you guys. Hey, wait a minute. What's the idea? Let's not have any unpleasantness, fellas. Now, just get in the car. Hey, what do we do? Look, I got a we'll date. I'll tell you all about it at headquarters. Well, I found a couple of sailors, Captain. Here they are. Yeah, what's the charge? What's the big idea, no, Holland? Take it easy, sailor. If you've been inconvenienced, I'm sorry. But you see this kid here? Sure, I see this kid Well, here. he's run away from home. He won't tell us who he is or where he lives. I'm going nuts. Well, what will he tell you? That he ran away to join the Navy. Oh. Oh, I see. Ah, hi, Admiral. Hi, sailor. So you want to join the Navy, huh? Aye, aye, sir. Okay. Tension. State your name and rank. Donald Martin, sir. Boy. Where do you live? 1515 Foothill Road. Hey, just like Daddy tells him. He wouldn't tell us nothing. Well, look, uh, mate, it's like this. Before they'll take you in the Navy, you got to have a letter from your mother or father saying it's okay, see? But I don't have a mother or father anymore. Oh. You think a letter from my Aunt Susie would be okay? Well, sure, why not? Okay, McGinley, drive them all over to the kid's house. Oh, no, nothing doing. Oh, we don't mind, Joe. It'll take you five minutes. No, no, I can't. I gotta... Look, what am I going to do about Lola? She's waiting for... Well, are you sure it'll only take five minutes? Maybe less even. Come on, kid. Here we go. Okay, Donald, what goes? I thought you said your Aunt Susie was here. She lives here, but she went out tonight. And left a nice little kid like you all alone. Oh, but Mrs. Murphy was here. See, she left a note. Give me that. Dear Miss Abbott, Donald was a very good boy. He's fast asleep, so I went home. Mrs. Murphy. <laughs> she only thought I was fast asleep. Yeah. Uh, fellas, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I don't want you to think I'd walk out on you, but... Uh, hey, where are you going? I'm leaving. I got a date with a girl. Well, well, that's just great. What do you think I got a date with, a duck? <laughs> well, anyway, you want to talk to her aunt, don't you? Thanks, fellas. Say, if he can blow, I can blow. Lola, Now, Joe, now, wait a minute, Joe. You can't leave me here. What about my being a wolf? You promised me. And you both promised me you'd talk to Aunt Susie. If you don't help me, what'll I do? Oh, pipe down a minute, will you? What are you so worried about? Huh? Oh, uh, things, sailor. Things. You'll understand when you get older. They used to say that to me, too, Donald. Well, did you understand when you got older? Nope. Uh, that Aunt Susie, what can an old lady be doing out this time of night? Hey, Joe, Psst. there she is. Hi, Aunt Susie. Hey, Joe, that ain't an old lady. That's a young lady. Well, what got you home so early? A feet give out? What? And just who are you? Leaving this little kid all alone while you're out having a big time. Would you mind uh, telling me what you're doing here? Oh, sure. We are a couple of guys the police called in when they found this kid wandering around the boulevard. Donald? Uh, 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 well, uh, just a moment. Uh, I... Don't apologize to us. Don't apologize. Come on, Clarence. Well... Well, goodbye. Joe, but you promised me. Joe, you promised. What? Hey, Joe, the kid's crying. Wait a minute, please. Give me a chance to explain. Okay, you're very sorry, but my pal and I have got plans, see? We'd like to get going. Oh, I haven't got a thing to do. What? Well, I just thought if you could stay for a little while. You see, Donald's so upset and I... Well, I... Oh, now, wait a minute, Donald. What is this? But you promised me, Joe... The letter, Joe, don't oh. go, don't go. Oh, uh, look at him, Joe. He's hugging you. What letter? Well, uh, the kid wanted to join the Navy, see, and well, I told him about needing a letter from his folks. And if you give it to me now, Aunt Susie, <laughs> I can leave with Joe. Can't I, Joe? Well, uh, well, uh, sure, but, uh, well, there's a couple of things besides a letter, like, uh, well, like, uh, can you, can you read and write? Ah, well... you can't read and write. You think the Navy takes dopes? 
Not ever? Well, uh, maybe sometimes, huh, Clarence? <laughs> yeah, but even dopes have to read and write. What'll I do? Well, the first thing you gotta do is study real hard. Before you know it, you won't be a dope. All right, Donald. Now what about bed? Okay, Aunt Susie, but Joe's got to tuck me in. What? Now, really, Donald. Oh, we'd be very happy to put him to bed, won't we, Joe? Huh? Joe, what's the matter, Joe? You got such a funny look on your face. You're all purpley-like. Okay, kid, now close those peepers and hit the sack. Come on. Joe, you're coming back to see me? Promise? Sure, I'll come back, sure. Come on, Clarence, let's blow. Wait, I always get sung to sleep. Look what wants to join the Navy. Okay, Clarence, you're the choir master around here. Sing to him. Oh, Joe. Go ahead, sing. Oh. Lullaby and good night With roses bedight Bright angels around My darling shall stand Lay thee down now and rest May thy slumber be blessed Lay thee down now and rest May thy slumber be blessed Well... He's asleep, Aunt Susie. I don't know how to thank you. Anyway, I've made some coffee and sandwiches. Sorry, we got to get going. Oh. Uh, goodbye, Aunt Susie, and thanks. Thanks again. But where are we going, Joe? I better phone Lola. That, that looks like a bar down the street. I'll phone from there. Uh, Joe, wait a minute. There's something I got to talk to you about. What? About getting a girl, I mean. Joe, I've seen the one I want. You mean... Oh, no, Clarence, no. Oh, uh, Joe, remember, you promised me. Okay, I promised you, but I didn't promise you Aunt Susie. Now, come on, get in the cafe. I got a phone. <laughs> but, Lola, baby, I know you're tired, but I... What do you mean it's for my sake? Huh? Okay, okay. No, no, I'm not sore. I'll be by tomorrow. Ten o'clock? In the morning? Well... Sure, Lola, if that's what you want. Uh, all right, goodbye, baby. Gee, Joe, that's tough. Yeah. Joe. What do you want? I don't want to keep messing up your plans, but... Well, we won't have to look for a girl for me anymore. We've already found Aunt Susie. No. I'm going to find you a dame that's a dame, see? But right now, we've got to find a place to sleep. Come on, we'll look up the nearest USO. <laughs> Beds down there, fellas. Thanks, pal. First nice leave for you guys? Yeah. Well, what do you say? Do you want to talk? Oh, sure. We got in a little trouble, didn't we, Joe? We picked up a little kid, see? Yeah, yeah. And what a little kid that was. What? <laughs> and what another little kid that she had waiting for us when we got home. <laughs> Such trouble we should run into every night of our life, huh, Clarence? <laughs> yeah. I tell you, never have I seen such dames. Now, take this blonde. Not that there was anything wrong with that redhead of yours, huh, Clarence? Oh, no, no. She was, uh, she was rather interesting. Interesting? You guys should have seen this kid work. Well, come on, sailor, give. Well, uh, we take the dames home, see? Yeah, yeah, you took the dames a home. A little slow at first, a little slow, but, um, 
Well, anyway, I asked my girl for a kiss. Oh, yeah. You did? And uh, she says, uh, no. Well, who won you with these dames? What happened? Well, I'll tell you. I begged her. That's only the way he started. I pleaded. You should have seen this boy operate. I told her, baby, come out of your shell. I told her, maybe you'll find that it's swell. What technique, huh? I argued. Never saw such a stubborn dame in my life. I threatened. This kid's got muscles, too. I said, you can't send me home, not like this. And I finally got that kiss. You tell her, Brooklyn. Yeah, tell yeah. her how it happened. She begged me. True? Well, true, true. She pleaded. Cut down on a bended knee to him. She told me, baby, come on out of your shell. Oh, this boy was sensational. She told me, maybe you'll find that it's swell. Tell him, Brooklyn. Tell I'm him. telling him. She argued. They fought like wildcats. And she threatened. Practically threw a gun on the boy. She said, you can't go away. Not like this. What happened? Then she finally got her Just a moment, our stars will return with Anchors Away. We return you now to William Keeley. Act two of Anchors Away, starring Frank Sinatra as Clarence Doolittle, Catherine Grayson as Susan, and Gene Kelly as Joe. Well, it's the following day. And has Joe Brady at long last had his date with Lola? Well, what do you think, with Clarence around? But, Joe, I had to let you sleep, Joe. You look so peaceful there in bed. And besides, you needed the rest badly, didn't you, Joe? Like I need a hole in the head. When I did wake up, when I phoned Lola, you know what she told me to do? Well, do you? Now, Joe, no rough stuff now, Joe. Joe, lay off, will you, Joe? Now, late in the afternoon, and much against his better judgment, Joe has allowed Clarence to talk him into calling on Donald and Aunt Susan. Oh, what a nice surprise. Well, uh, we promised Donald we'd come back, and Clarence here bought him some toys. Oh, Mr. Doodle, how sweet of you. Oh, that's okay. Where is Donald? Donald's still in school. Won't you sit down? Say, uh, speaking of Donald, aren't you a little young to be bringing up a kid? Well, I'm all the family he has. I, I know it's hard on Donald. I mean, I never know when the studios are going to call me, like last night. Oh, you, you were working last night? Mm-hmm. I thought you were out on a date. Oh, an actress, huh? Well, what do you know? Yeah, she wears movies. Well, I'm not really an actress. Uh, just an extra. Uh, what I really want to do is sing. Well, why don't you? Oh, that's easy to say. Oh, well, there's always a chance that someone will hear me. There's some really great musicians at the studios, Stakowski and Jose Iturbi. Iturbi, huh? Mm-hmm. And then whenever I can sing, I, I sing in a little Mexican cafe. As a matter of fact, I'm singing there tonight. 
So if you'll excuse me, I'd better run up and change. Well, if you want somebody to hear you sing, here's your boy right here, Clarence. What? Clarence? Well, sure. He used to be the assistant. Now, wait a minute, Joe. Careful. Remember what you promised well, me. Well, anyway, you know that fellow you mentioned before, a Turby? Well, Clarence and a Turby are just like this. Pals. No, Joe, please, Joe. Well, why not tell her? Look, Aunt Susan, while you change your dress, Clarence will call up a Turby and arrange for him to hear you sing. Oh, Clarence, do you really mean that? Certainly he means it, don't you, Clarence? Yeah, yeah, I guess I do, yeah. Oh, how can I ever thank you, Clarence? There, you see? You see? She's grateful to you already. Now you get a date with her and, uh... But, Joe... Joe, I don't know her, Turby. You lied to her, Joe. You told me you knew a guy named a Turby in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Maxi Turby, he's a butcher. <laughs> details. Always worrying about details. I tell you, Clarence, it's a cinch. Clarence, did you speak to him, Mystery Turby? Of course he did, and you got an audition. When? When did he say? When? Go ahead, Clarence, tell her when. Um, uh, Saturday, Saturday morning, 11.15. See? Oh, I just don't know how to thank you. It's, well, it's about the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me. Look, uh, Clarence has so many things to tell you. Why don't you two go to that Mexican place together, have dinner and talk it over? Well, I think that would be a wonderful idea. Uh, yes, well, uh, Joe, you better come, too. No, oh, no, I, cu I couldn't do that. I couldn't. I've, I've got a date. Oh, Joe, you said you weren't meeting Lola till 10 o'clock? Well, you two work it out while I call Mrs. Murphy. She's coming over to stay with Donald again. What do you want to drag me along for? Because I don't know what a Turby told me on the phone. <laughs> okay, okay, but I'm blowing early, do you understand? Early. Yeah, blow. Senoras y señores, we are very happy to have once again Miss Susan Abbott to sing for us. Mysterious pain. We can still a 
Gee, Susie, you were wonderful. Well, thank you. Where's Joe? Oh, Joe went to make a phone call. Oh. Yeah, he's a pretty busy guy. He is? Yeah, he's the most wonderful wolf in the whole Navy. Oh. Well, what about you, Clarence? Oh, I'm fine. Well, <laughs> what I mean is, what sort of work do you do in the Navy? Gun crew. Hmm. Is it interesting? It's keen. <laughs> well, that's nice. And, um... Oh, we missed you. Oh, I'll bet you did, huh, Clarence? Hey, Joe, try these enchiladas. They're murder. Susie, your song was best yet. Thank you, Pedro. Pedro, guess who I'm going to sing for on Saturday morning? Jose Turby. Susita, excuse, please. I tell Mama. Uh, hey, uh, Susie, it's only an audition. Do you think you ought to tell people? Yeah, what if everything didn't go just right? Well, you've given me my opportunity, and if I fail now, well, it's my own fault. Uh-huh, well, uh, say, Clarence, uh, why don't you dance with Susan? Well, I'd love to, Clarence. Uh, thanks, but I don't know how to dance. Joe will be glad to dance with you, Susan. Huh? Well? Oh, 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 sure. Gee, look at him dancing. Joe's a wonderful dancer. I'm such a coward. I don't know why, either. Why do I freeze when Susie just looks at me? What makes people act this way about people? Ah, what makes anything? What makes the sun set? What makes the moon rise? What makes the tide remember to hide And why does it soon rise What makes a star fall Where does it fall to Why does its flight make a stop In the night And wish as we all do And what holds a And what makes the sky so blue? What makes the sun set? What makes the moon rise? Is it my love for you? A person could die from such singing. Hey, who are you? One of the waitresses. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. You're from Brooklyn. Yeah. How do you know, you two? Yeah, Flatbush. Green paint. Well, well how, how do you, you like, like that? that? <laughs> you here all alone? No, I'm with a girl. She's dancing, see? Huh? Oh, oh, Miss Abbott, huh? Oh, she's a swell girl, all right. Yeah, only... I don't know how to talk to her. I can't ever talk to girls at all. Well, you're talking to me, aren't you? Oh, it's sure different. You're from Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Excuse me, Joe. What did you say? I said most girls are so easy to figure out. They are? Yeah, but for you, you... Well, one time you look kind of as if you knew all the answers, and then ten minutes later you, you're like a little kid. Just when a guy starts thinking maybe I ought to buy an ice cream cone or a doll or something, all of a sudden you're grown up again. I am? 
Yeah. Yeah, and everything gets all kind of mixed up and, and interesting. I, I mean... Well, I mean... Well, that's what Clarence said about you. You know, he thinks about you all the time. He does? Well, who do you think about, Joe? Well, I... Oh, I, I don't know, Aunt Susie. Right now, I'm a little confused about everything. I... All of a sudden, I... Oh, let's get back to the table, huh? And did you hear what Aunt Susie said when we brought her home, Joe? She said she didn't know when she'd been so happy. Yeah, why shouldn't she be happy with that big, beautiful audition coming up? Oh, it's Turby. Joe, what'll I do? Yeah, and what'll I do? When I called Lola tonight from that Mexican joint, she hung up on me. Joe, look. You just gotta get to a Turby. I don't know how, but the first thing tomorrow morning, you gotta go to that movie studio and talk to a Turby. Mr. Turby's office. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Whitney, but Mr. Turby isn't in. Yes, yes, I'll tell him you called. Now then, you're Mr. Brady. Yeah, I wanted to see... If Ms. you'll sit down over there, Mr. Turby should be here shortly. Uh, thanks a lot, Miss. Mm, strange you didn't tell me you had an appointment. Come in. Uh, my name is Susan Abbott, and I have an appointment to see Mr. Eternia. Oh, hello there. Don't you ever speak to sailors, lady? Well, Joe, what are you doing here? Well, uh, Clarence is off having a little chat with Jose, and I'm waiting for him to come back. Come on, let's go have a Coke or something. Well, I, I was just... Say Saturday, uh, come on, Miss. Susan, let's go. Joe... I, I don't understand. Well, uh, I don't understand either. What are you doing here at the studio? Well, I'm working here today as an extra, so I thought I... And that's where you almost made a terrible mistake. Boy, are you lucky I was in a Turby's office to stop you. But, Joe, why? Well, well, look, you go to see Mr. Turby now. You try to talk to him, see? Well, he's polite, but very busy, and it, it's just no good. But if you wait till Saturday morning, well, Turby's expecting to see one of these big, beefy opera singers, and, and you walk in. You look like a million dollars. Ah, oh, believe me, Aunt Susie, you'll kill him. Well, yes, maybe that would be better, Joe. Sure. So come on, let's have that coke. But what happened, Joe? How come you didn't see a turby? I ran into Susie, that's how come. You mean she... She still thinks she's seeing him on Saturday? Now, don't worry, kiddo. Uh... We'll get to a turby and tell him it's just a gag and... Well, they say he's a swell fella, and maybe you'll let her sing for him after all. Uh, I don't know. Joe, Joe, about tonight, you'll, you'll come with me when I go down to the cafe, won't you? No, Clarence. Uh, you see, well, well that's Susie. You know, she's okay. You see her alone. For heaven's sake, look who's here. Oh, hello, Brooklyn. Yeah, I got a date with Susie. I'm early. You look like you were going to a funeral. What's the matter? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be alone with her tonight, and I won't even know what to say. I'm such a dope. Oh, what's wrong with you? Why, last night, the first note I heard you sing, I knew you were the romantical type. Now, look, I'm Hersey. I'm just finishing supper. I'm sitting here toying with my cup of java. The fellas are playing soft music. I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. Gee, you're swell. Gee, thanks. I I mean, well, that's swell for a starter. What else, Clarence? Well, well, something like this, maybe. The charm of you is comparable to 
A Christmas tree with toys With little girls and boys When first they see the tree The thrill of you is comparable to The thrill I felt when I First learned a heart could sigh And you were the reason why And yet, and yet If we two had never met I'd know your grace That warmth of face That only the angels get And so Comparing you With all of these things Is all that I can do Because they add up to The charm a month's tips to have somebody sing to me like that. Uh, somebody will, Brooklyn. You wait and see. You're a wonderful girl. Oh, go on. I... Hey, here she comes, Miss Abbott. I better get to work. Hello, Clarence. Oh, hello, Susan. Oh, I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Uh-uh. Did you have a nice time today with Mystery Turby? Have a... Uh, uh, mm -hmm. I saw Joe at the studio, you know, and he said that you and Mystery Turby... Oh, yeah. Yeah, Susan... Yeah, I remember. Look, Susan, there's something I've got to tell you. It, it might make a great difference in the way you feel about seeing me even, but I've got to tell you. Oh, please, please don't tell me now, Clarence. I, I like you very much, but, well, we haven't known each other very long, and, well, well, sometimes it's a mistake to say things too soon. You think so? Oh, yes, I do. Well, I feel better. I was afraid to tell you anyway. Uh... uh by the way, where is Joe tonight? Oh, Joe probably has a date with Lola. He's crazy about her. Oh, I see. I mean, I mean, she's crazy about him, and, and he doesn't seem to mind it at all. Well, anyway, Clarence, I can't begin to tell you how grateful I am. Oh, gee, Aunt Susan. It's, it's really nothing. Why, I... Ow! Clarence! Oh, oh, it's all my fault. I didn't watch where I was going. Oh, Clarence, just look... You're all over soup. Oh, that, that's all right, Brooklyn. You, you hardly touched me. You want to come out in the kitchen a couple of minutes next to that oven and you'll be dry? I, I think you'd better, Clarence. It's all right. I'll wait for you. Are you getting dried out, Clarence? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. There's a noodle in your hair. Oh. I'll get it for you. Gee... Thanks. You know, I I wish I could stay here and talk to you. You do? Yeah. You know something, Brooklyn? With with you around, I, well, I feel like I was home again in Flatbush. Gee, thanks. You're welcome. And that's not all. The more I look at you, Brooklyn... Hiya, Clarence. Hey, Joe. I thought you had a date with Lola. Where's Susan? Oh, she went to phone. She's checking up on Donald. Look, I've been waiting to get you alone. You having fun? Sure. All you needed was a girl. 
Look, kid, I've been scouting around. I mean about a Turby, and I found out he's rehearsing his orchestra tomorrow morning in the Hollywood Bowl. Uh-huh. We'll nail him there for sure, so don't worry. Everything's going to be okay with you and Susan. Yeah, but, Joe, I relax, don't want to... Relax, kid, relax. Just bring her along till we see what happens in the morning. Ah, it's no use, Joe. Turby's in the bowl, and we're here in the street. Guards at every entrance. Uh, even you can be licked, Joe. We just got to tell Susie the truth, that's all. Okay. Well, she's working at the studio today. I'll try to find her. No, wait a minute, Joe. This time's up to me to do it. No, no, I'll tell her. She'll be good and sore, but she'll be sore at me, right? I'll tell her how it all happened just because you were crazy about her. Well, what's the use? We're due back in San Pedro tomorrow, and our leave is practically over. Oh, Clarence, Susie's not a girl just for a leave. She's a... She's a kind you come home to, and... Oh, this'll do it. Joe. Yeah? There's a... There's something I've been wanting to tell you. What? Ah, uh, never mind. I guess you're right. Okay, I'll meet you at that little bar near Susie's house about six o'clock. Yeah, sure. Okay, Joe. Clarence, what are you doing here in the middle of the afternoon? I don't know, Brooklyn. Except that I left Joe about three hours ago and I started walking and, well, here I am. That's not the truth. I do know why I'm here. Brooklyn, I love you. Oh, no, Clarence. No, you love Susan. I, I did, but I, but I don't. Uh, I mean, I know it's awful, but I can't help it. I love you. I don't think it's so awful, Clarence. Well, yes, it is. It, may, it means that, well, it means that I'm fickle. But say you'll marry me, Brooklyn. Please say you'll... Oh, no. No. Clarence, what's the matter? Well, I've been in such a daze about you, I forgot. Forgot what? That Joe is seeing her now. Joe is... Joe, he's making me out a big guy so she'll like me. Susan, I mean. And I don't want her to like me. Oh, every time I leave that guy, I get in trouble. Joe! Hey, Joe! <laughs> Called now for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Act three of Anchors Away, starring Frank Sinatra as Clarence, Catherine Grayson as Susan, and Gene Kelly as Joe. Poor Clarence Doolittle. He's so in love with the waitress from Brooklyn, he forgot all about the fact that Joe's been patiently waiting at the picture studio to see Susan to tell her the truth about the make-believe audition and shoulder all the blame. But there's one fact Clarence couldn't possibly know. Joe Brady's fallen quite hopelessly in love himself with Susan. Why, Joe, I didn't know you were here. Hello, Susan. Are they through shooting? Can, can I talk to you? Well, what would you like to say, Joe? Well, I... Oh, uh... well, perhaps I can tell you. Clarence is a very fine boy. Oh, I know that. You saved his life, so you owe him something, and you've decided that he's just about right for me. Does that about cover it? 
No. No, that doesn't come anywhere near it. Oh, yes. And you, well, you like a very definite type of girl, and I'm very definitely not it. Oh, don't be mad, Aunt Susie. <sighs> I'm sorry. What is it, Joe? Well, Susie, what I've got to tell you... It, well, uh, well, it's not very easy, but... Oh, the same thing happens every time I'm with you. I, I hear myself saying words that never have anything to do with the things I really feel about you. Well, all I know are the things you say, Joe, and I, I don't like them. But I've never said what I really wanted to say because... Oh, because my way of saying it just isn't good enough. Well, then there must be some other way. Oh, sure. Sure there is. It comes right out of Romeo and Juliet and the Three Musketeers and all that stuff they say in books and movies and... Yeah, yeah, movies, like they're making here now. They, they're full of words I want to say, but I can't. Well, did you ever think of trying, Joe? No, nah, you'd laugh at me. I'd laugh at myself. Words like that don't go with sailor suits and four-day leaves and the world we live in. They... Well, you see that scenery over there? Mm-hmm, that's for the picture we're making. Yeah, long ago, make-believe. That's tough. A world of cloaks and swords and, uh, I don't know if... If you lived in a place like that, I could tell you. Oh, Joe, why don't you tell me? Please tell me. But I... All right, then, I will. Susan, I... I love you. I love you. You're a little late, Joe. It's half past six. I'm sorry, Clarence. Joe. Yeah? You, uh... Yeah? Oh, nothing. Clarence? Yeah, Joe. If I was to tell you that I... Nah. It's been a hot day, hasn't it? Bartender, give me a beer. Joe, look, I gotta... No, tell... Clarence, you look. Clarence, sometimes things happen and... Well, you, you just can't help them, see? You... Well, you meet somebody, and you don't think it's anything, and then, well, all of a sudden, it is something, and I... Gee, that's exactly the way it happened. Don't I know? Yeah, it's wonderful, though. Well, it could be, but not when you double-cross a pal. When did you find out, Joe? Today. But I've had a hunch about it pretty nearly from the beginning. You did? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, I, I didn't. Not, not until I kissed her. Huh? Of course, last night when she dropped the noodle soup on me, I should have known then. The, the, the waitress. Yeah. Gee, she's a terrible waitress. Oh, no. No. Yeah, Joe, you mean, you mean you're not sore? Oh, me? no. No, I'm not sore. <laughs> Is she sore, Susie? Susie? No, I, I wouldn't say she acted sore. No, not at all. Even when you told her there wasn't going to be any audition? Any audition? No. <laughs> Joe. Joe. You mean you, you didn't tell her? Uh-uh. Well, what did you tell her? What could you be talking about all this time? Oh, just things. Joe, you're in love with Susan yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see? I'm not such a dope, Joe. You're gonna ask her to marry you, aren't you, Joe? Gee, I'd sure like to. Well, when? Before or after she doesn't have the audition with a turby? A turby. Clarence, I gotta get to a turby. Mm. But He's got to light someplace. He's got to have someplace he calls home. He... Home. Home, Clarence. Home. Come on, Clarence. 
Yes, gentlemen. Oh, good morning. Has Mr. Atobe... You're the same sailors who were here last night. All night. We slept under the tree. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, but he gave a concert last night in Bakersfield. Yeah, you, you told us. That was last night, but... He just it... phoned. He's going straight to the studio. Oh, thanks. Gee whiz, that's awful. What are you going to do, Joe? You know, our bus leaves at noon. Well, I'll, I'll go straight to Susie's house and stop her before she leaves for the audition. Uh, now, look, Clarence, don't let this spoil it for you, kid. You, you go to see Brooklyn. You, you haven't got much time. Well, I'll be glad to go with you, Joe. Nah, beat it, pal. This, this is something i got to handle myself. And I've been worried, Joe. I was afraid you wouldn't come and see me again. Ah, uh, Donald, you don't think I'd go away without saying goodbye. Joe, if you're looking for somebody, Aunt Susie isn't home. She went to the studio. You can see Mrs. Murphy, though. Uh, no thanks, Donald. Look, kid, I, I've got to get back to my ship and... Well, will you tell Aunt Susie something for me? You, you tell her that, that I tried awfully hard to make things come out right and that I'm awfully sorry it had to end that way. Have you got that? Yes, sir. Good. Well, thanks, sailor. Thanks a lot. Well, here you are, Susie, your coffee and donut. Thanks, Eddie. I wouldn't have kept you waiting, but seeing who you were just talking to, boy, Hosea Turby. Oh, and I'm the biggest fool you ever saw. Hey, now, wait a minute. Sure I was talking to him, Eddie. Didn't you hear me? Good morning, Mr. E. Turby. I'm so excited. Imagine running into you here in the cafeteria. Huh? Susie, what is this? What is it? It's just the joke of the month. Oh, I was foolish enough to believe in someone. I thought he was my friend. And he told me he'd arranged it all with Mr. E. Turby and I. You mean you were going <laughs> to sing for a Turby and everybody knew about it but a Turby? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Eddie. I just can't help it. Oh, Eddie! Eddie, do you know a girl named Abbott? Susan Abbott? That's her right there, Miss Green, and she ain't feeling so hot. Well, maybe I can make her feel better. Miss Abbott, I'm Mr. Turby's secretary, remember? Oh, oh yes, I, I do, and I promise I, I won't ever bother him again. You see, I didn't know... He, he didn't know either, Miss Abbott, but he knows now. You thought you had an audition for 11.15 this morning, didn't you? Yes, I, I made a terrible mistake. Well, Mr. Turby thinks a screen test and audition would be much better. He what? Well, I would have come sooner, but I've been busy phoning wardrobe and makeup. Here. Here, your instructions are all in this paper. Stage three, Miss Abbott, at 11.15. From the heart of a lonely poet Came a song for the girl he adored Though she tried very hard not to show it She was terribly, terribly bored But then the poet asked her if she'd like words And her eyes shone And the moon shone And the stars shone Oh, <laughs> 
That was wonderful. Come to my office as soon as you're through talking to Mr. Aterby. Oh, thank you very much. Young woman, you're going to be a star. Ah, look, Joe, just because we're off duty, what do we have to sit here in quarters for? All you do is sit and stare. I'm looking at the harbor. We're shoving off tonight, aren't we? It'll be a long time before we see land again, won't it? Ah, uh, don't give me that. Why don't you write Susie a letter, Joe? I don't have anything to tell her. Well, tell her you're sorry. She knows I'm sorry. How does she know? Clarence, you write a letter, will you? Write Brooklyn two letters. I wash some socks. I go to sleep. I don't... <clears throat> Joe, what's the matter, Joe? D. Oh, oh, excuse me, sir. I didn't see you. Seaman Brady. Aye, aye, sir. Seaman Doolittle. Aye, aye, sir. Why aren't you men on deck? Don't you know if there's a big entertainment program about to start? Don't you want to see those Hollywood stars? Well, we're off duty, sir, and I, well, I guess we don't feel like being entertained. Oh, you don't, don't you? There's a man named Turby on board asking for you. Turby? He's asking for us? You heard me. Aft on the quarterdeck. Get going, both of you. He said after deck, Joe, but I wouldn't know a Turby if I... Brooklyn! Flatbush! What are you doing here? Oh, are you complaining, honey? Brooklyn! <laughs> <laughs> Joe! Hey, Joe! Look at me! I'm kissing her, Joe! I'm hugging her, Joe! Hey, Joe, I'm a wolf! I'm a... Hey, where's Joe? See where the band is? Well, look! Aunt Susie! Yeah, Aunt Susie! All hands' attention! All hands' attention! At ease, man. I've been requested by our guest of honor, Mr. Turby, to grant a young artist permission to make her debut right here. Therefore, I'd like to introduce a singer discovered by the United States Navy, Miss Susie... And Susie! There's Joe! There's our Joe! Joe! Susie! <laughs> uh, therefore, in about five minutes, I'd like to introduce a young singer discovered by the United States Navy. Meanwhile, I'm sure the band has something to contribute... Yes, sir! Our stars will return for their curtain calls in a moment. Here's Mr. Keeley at the microphone. For rounding out the year on such a happy note... Our thanks to Joe Pasternak, who produced Anchors Away, and to the stars who brought it to our stage, Frank Sinatra, Catherine Grayson, and Gene Kelly. You've set a challenging standard for us with tonight's performance. Well, Bill, we're very glad that you got back from Washington in time to join us. Yes, and what's this I hear about your making off with the door to J. Edgar Hoover's office? Well, we had to get a shot of that door, so instead of carting our cameras upstairs, we 
just uh, stole the door and brought it down. Well, that's quite something, stealing a door from under the FBI's nose. Actually, the FBI was most cooperative. We'll be looking forward to seeing that picture when it's finished, Bill. Thanks, Frank, and I'm looking forward to the film that you and Catherine just finished for Metro-Golden-Mare, <laughs> The Kissing Bandit. Well, all I can say is that Frank's voice is as good as ever in that picture. For that matter, that husband you keep at home is no slouch either. <laughs> you mean Johnny Johnston? Yeah. He and Catherine make a fine duo. As for you, Gene, we're happy to see you on your feet again. Yes, after all those broken legs, I'm sure Gene's fans are anxious to know if he'll ever dance for them again. Well, here's my answer, Frank. Well, lay it on us, kid. <laughs> yes, sir? Looks like the old Kelly, Gene. And Gene's fan will, fans will have a chance to see him dance when MGM releases his next picture called The Pirate. Good, Good night, night and best wishes to all three of you. Before we meet again, the old year will have passed us by, and with it speed our outworn prejudices and mistakes. We stand upon the threshold of new opportunity, the chance to strive anew for tolerance and justice, to the end that all mankind may truthfully look forward to a happy new year. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, join me in wishing you the best of health and happiness in 1948. And we invite you to join us again next Monday evening when the Lux Radio Theater presents Loretta Young and Joseph Cotton in The Farmer's Daughter. This is William Keeley saying good night to you from Hollywood. Frank Sinatra, Catherine Grayson, and Gene Kelly appeared by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of the Technicolor musical Good News, starring June Allison and Peter Lawford. Heard in our cast tonight were Francis Robinson as Brooklyn and Johnny McGovern as Donald. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers. And this is your announcer, John Milton Kennedy, reminding you to join us again next Monday night to hear The Farmer's Daughter with Loretta Young and Joseph Cotton. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, and centennial honoree Catherine Grayson in the Lux Radio Theater production of Anchors Away from the Eve of the Eve of New Year's Eve in 1947. It brings us to the end of this edition of the Big Broadcast. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Kenny Pirog, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you as friend of friend. I'm sorry it's through. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too. Let's make a date for next Sunday night. I'm here to stay. It will be my delight to sing again, bring again 
the things you want me to I love to spend each Sunday with 